looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. going on everybody this is wrong real episode 494 it's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles how we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard and today we're going back to the golden age of Hollywood with one of the greatest writer directors in movie history the great Preston Sturgis and for this conversation I've got the host of film baby film John Lombinger and we're just going to go through Preston Sturgis's whole goddamn career, but obviously placing special emphasis on our personal favorites. But Mr. Lobinger, welcome back to Wrong Real. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always hesitant about your name now because I know you have like an alias, so it's like, <laughs> like you have like different names in different places. But uh, I feel like in the podcasting world, John Lombinger is the the official handle. Yeah. So I I don't know if I told you this, but I I use for Facebook I use Jonathan James because I dated a woman and then broke up with her, and I didn't want her to be able to find me on Facebook. So switched over to the middle name. What if she's a wrong real listener? <laughs> You're totally fucked. <laughs> the, well, I, honestly, that'd be great. I, I hope all of my ex-girlfriends are wrong real listeners. So. Beautiful. But before we get into Mr. Sturgis, catch me up what's been happening. We were just about to start talking about The Color Out of Space, which I know you saw a couple days ago. Yeah, so what's been happening is uh, uh, Film Baby Film uh, just put out a couple of episodes did our top 10 episode. We split it up over a couple of episodes, released that yesterday. Did and I fail to retweet those or notice those? Because I can't remember retweeting them. I'm going to do it right now. I'm like the worst social media updater. I just feel... <laughs> so you you might not have seen it. But yeah, so that just came out yesterday. And um, it, I also saw a movie and watched a discussion about Colorado Space. I saw Colorado Space a couple of days before it got wide release um amc times square yeah i wanted to see it last wednesday but i was uh, i was unavoidably detained so i got to see it at the ifc center on friday and i'm a bit of a lovecraft freak how would you rate your level of interest in uh in lovecraft so i'm more of a stephen king fan and actually my introduction to lovecraft came i read i can't remember the short story collection from stephen king but he had a lovecraftian story that was in it and so i went back and read a a couple of stories i never got as deep into lovecraft as i did stephen king but obviously mandy was one of my favorite movies of the last decade so the idea of nicholas cage doing another thing with specter vision richard stanley coming out of I don't know what you call that, retirement or whatever. And coming back and making a movie, it was must-see as soon as I could, for sure. Yeah, I mean, Richard Stanley, when when I was listening to the Postmortem podcast, and he said that while his experience on Island of Dr. Murrow was obviously awful, 
the one positive side effect was that they were contractually obliged to pay him his full salary. Mm. And so it gave him enough money where he could afford not to work for a living indefinitely because he's always lived very simply. He's like, you know, he's, I think he's like a hobbit in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so... I don't know. Like, I know he's been making shorts and documentary things like that. And he obviously he appears in things like Jodorowsky's Dune. He's been like on the scene, but seeing him reemerge after this 20 year hiatus and have his skills be so like intact, that was a big surprise. Cause I was thinking like how much of the old Richard Stanley remains from the fucking nineties. And the answer was all of it. If, if, if anything, he's gotten, be- gotten better. Yeah. And so, one of the things, so while I'm not as deep into Lovecraft as, you know, come back and ask me in a few years and I'm, I might be deeper, but... Once he's made his Dunwich horror. Yeah, how exciting is that? I just, uh, I, I found out about that from your YouTube channel. It's one of uh, Lovecraft's best, so... That he's doing the trilogy. That's so Absolutely. awesome. Absolutely. So all, I'm assuming all three are going to be with Spectre Vision. That, that is my assumption as well. Yeah. And obviously, if any of these films were to fail spectacular in spectacular fashion, right. that trilogy might not happen. But once again, on the Postmodern Podcast, he said he's not saying yet what the third movie is, but he says if you're a Lovecraft fan, you can probably guess. Lovecraft has, depending on how big a fan you are, between like five and ten major stories that kind of mm-hmm. define the Cthulhu mythos. And so I'm assuming Call of Cthulhu or Shadow Over Innsmouth or perhaps At the Mountains of Madness will be the third movie in the trilogy. Got it. Got it. I think I've read At the Mountains of Madness. Um, but in my, so when we discussed the things that we were looking forward to in 2020 and beyond, uh, at the end of, uh, the film baby film top 10 episode, one of the things that I said, I really want to see more of is environmentalism or ecological horror films. Annihilation was one of my favorite movies. And so, and I, you know, um, my girlfriend is like traumatized whenever she saw like that awful stuff in Australia, with all the it, it, and so I was thinking about it. I was like, "Oh, that would be a great horror film," is to depict some of this stuff. Backdraft, baby. Yeah. Part two. <laughs> yeah. No. Ex- <laughs> not exactly, this but yeah, kind of. Aussie land. But no, I just thought the annihilation. You know, everything that was going on there, doing that in a horror film is great. And so to see some of that in Stanley's film was, you know, gratifying. Yeah, so, he's yeah. a hardcore environmentalist in a big way. And apparently, he the only place where he had to kind of tap the brakes a bit was he had uh, he had inserted a little bit more um, kind of specific uh, political messaging. And Spectre was like, you know, we want everybody to see this, not just right. your your crew. And so whether or not that was the right call or not. I don't know, but I know obviously once you make an overt political statement, you do run the risk of alienating anyone with whom might, they might disagree with the movie, etc. So, oh yeah, not necessarily political one way or the other. It's just the things that you're seeing on television and the things that people are afraid of. The idea that you know cosmic horror, the idea of not just the annihilation of your personal self, but the annihilation of you know all humanity, yeah. is like a special kind of fear, and so. You and go very back. rarely explored, I guess like in the 1970s, like those animal disaster movies did a little bit, but it's it's been left untouched for a long time. We had all those great nuclear, uh, you know, nuclear holocaust horror movies in the 50s. So the idea of doing something similar to that now, I'd be totally jazzed for it. And I'm actually trying to generate ideas so I can write my own. But Annihilation was great. And now we can add color out of space, I think, to that same canon. So, yeah, I was I'm, I'm a fan. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, Lovecraft, 
If you want to hear more about Lovecraft, check out the episode I did with Victor Rodriguez. And I'm just going to double check the episode. I believe it was 489. But we do a top yeah top 10 uh, Lovecraft adaptations across video games and movies and television and all kinds of stuff. But the only thing that Lovecraft never wrote, which is a shame, is he never wrote a post-apocalyptic story about what would happen after mm. these uh, the Cthulhu kind of deities do return because I guess the assumption is that when these elder gods do return that they're basically just going to completely totally wipe the face of this planet entirely clean so there would be no post-apocalyptic dystopia in which to live it reminds me a little bit when people say like oh well when you're trying, when you're an environmentalist, it's not about saving the planet because the planet's always going to be here. It's whether or not we'll always be here. like the planet will be fine. Like say we render the planet uninhabitable and we go extinct, well Earth's just going to keep on spinning, right. <laughs> like keep right. hurtling through space. <laughs> and after untold millennia, we'll resume its usual way of doing things. We just won't be there to see it. And so, so I think people need to revise it. It's not save the planet. It's like save our species (laughs) (laughs) no well that would be like a what cabin in the woods sequel it would be it would be what happens after uh spoiler alert for people who haven't seen cabin in the woods but after they don't make the sacrifice of the virgin absolutely that giant giant fucking hand comes out of the ground that was a really cool closing shot i think cabin in the woods is kind of underrated yeah is it drew goddard who directed that uh, Drew God, no, it was um. Oh gosh, uh, why am I blanking on this? Drew Goddard was involved with it, but it was what's his face? Um, Joss Whedon directed it. No, he didn't direct. He was one of the co-writers. Oh, okay, I have it backwards then. Yeah, so Cabin in the Woods, 2011. Yeah, directed by Drew Goddard. Obviously worked with like Ridley Scott on um The Martian and things like that. But yeah, he's he's a player. But his most recent movie, uh, Bad Times at the El Royale, is what it was called. Um, I enjoyed it, but it just vanished. It just totally completely fell on its face. So people always say they want to see new original movies, but when movies come along that are not based on pre-existing IP, then they're like, "What's that?" And they don't go. So it's yeah. a, it's a strange situation we find ourselves in. We can easily segue, by the way, from Richard Stanley to Preston Sturgis because Preston Sturgis, while he didn't have, I mean, Stanley's career was one where it was like super promising and then died almost immediately as soon as the promise was beginning to get unveiled on, you know, with big budgets. Sturgis had a different trajectory, but nonetheless, he has. Yeah, he had a few more turns of bat. Yeah, he had a, he had, uh, you know, that that crazy three or four years right at the beginning in the 40s when he was directing and writing and he was, you know, breaking new ground in that air, uh, in that area um, in Hollywood. But then eventually, yeah, he he hits the wall as well. He's, yeah, the story's over as quickly as it begins. Right. Yeah, I mean, Richard Stanley with Hardware was a low-budget movie, tons of fanfare, and then his follow-up film got completely mangled and butchered by Harvey Weinstein. And then obviously on the Island of Dr. Moreau, it just... he just collided with the machinery of Hollywood and Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer and just got eaten alive like he was thrown into a wood chipper. And that would destroy just about anybody. But with Preston Sturgis, he becomes a director fairly late in life in his early 40s. So I think at this point, he's an... He's had hits on Broadway, and he's written hit movies throughout the 30s, so he's got some experience. He's not entirely green, but he's also a person who's able to kind of pursue every pleasure or whim because he's so wealthy that he starts opening nightclubs and drinking and getting married all the time. Like His, his life's total 
chaos, which I think you can see at play in a lot of his movies. Like his best movies take that chaos and are able to kind of harness it and control it and channel it. But then by the end of his career, you see that just everything's coming unwound and unspooled. And it's a remarkable meteoric career and is mostly contained just to the 1940s. So yeah, I feel like he in a lot of ways personifies the golden age of Hollywood and his success opened the door for Billy Wilder and John Huston and other writer directors. But I get a little annoyed when people say, oh, he's like the first writer-director. I'm like, well, that's not exactly true. Like, Charlie Chaplin was writing and directing movies in the 20s. So right. And then you've got, like, Rene Claire, and you've got Noel Coward. So I would say he's the first great writer-director of the talkie era in Hollywood because Frank Capra wasn't writing, and Howard Hawks wasn't writing. Like, and like, so other people who were doing great, like, screwball comedies, they were great directors but weren't writing. So I would say Preston Sturges is the first great writer-director of the talkie era. I feel like that's nice and specific, because Rene Claire and uh, Rene Claire and Noel Coward were obviously over in Europe at that time. Yeah, and I think the way... Well, first of all, so Preston Sturges is one of the many great directors that was also... You know, perhaps the greatest fiction tale he ever told was just his life story. So everything about him is wrapped with mythology and hyperbole. And I think the way that they get around that particular one is they say he was the first person in the talkie era who started out as a screenwriter primarily. Made the jump. And made the jump to director. And then he started to recruit... You know, uh, uh, he said to recruit other writers and say, hey, why do you why are you just writing? Don't you want to direct as well? And then that became more of a thing. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, writers in the 30s were definitely expected to be kept in their place. And when he got paid a ton of money for a screenplay, I think I can't remember. It was one screenplay he wrote like in the early 30s and be like, like, what are you doing? Like, if you pay writers all this money, like they might start thinking they're important to the creative process. Like they were treated like, like, like kind of like monkeys smashing keyboards in, a, like in the back room and you would assign 12 writers and it was largely the job of like the producer and the director to kind of harness all the various abilities. But it just seems like in the quote unquote talkie era, why would you not give some... I guess larger importance to people that are responsible for the written word. It seems like of all the people to marginalize, why would you marginalize like the people that are responsible for the very in- innovation that you're trying to introduce to the art of movie making? So that just seems ironic to me. Yeah, I think you're referring to Power and the Glory, which is all. I think it's Power and the Glory. Yeah, with like a precursor to Citizen Kane. Yeah, the precursor to Citizen Kane. So yeah, no, I mean. He's definitely, he was a creative dynamo. I mean, he was just a dynamo, period. Um, he, you mentioned that he was wealthy. It's interesting. His mother, we, I, I feel like it's impossible to really talk about Preston Sturgis without saying at least a little bit the, the about... Prim- the primordial soup from which he emerges is <laughs> it's riveting. It's amazing. Yeah. So the idea behind her is, I, and I, this part I'm, I haven't been able to find in my research. I do not know if how poor she was born. If she was born poor if she was born middle class if she was born like lower upper class i it's hard to tell but she eventually she escapes a escapes a marriage with preston surge's father he sucked he was it sounds like he wasn't making a lot of money abusive all of that good stuff so what does she do does she get a job in chicago no she hops on a boat to paris and immediately charms everybody that comes across her path. You get the sense that when we talk about the Lady Eve, um, the Barbara Stanwyck character, Jean, is pretty clearly like cut from the same cloth yep. as the mother. The mother gets to Paris and immediately becomes friends with the woman who is the mother of dance. And then Mary... So Isadora Duncan, is that her Isadora name? Isadora Duncan, yeah. yeah. Who ends up getting her neck snapped... <laughs> from a scarf that Preston Sturges' mother gave to her, which gets like caught like in a wagon wheel or a car wheel, but yeah, at yeah. age 50, just... 
boom, like lights out. So I just like, you know, so the mother of dance in Western Europe was murdered by the Sturgis family. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's every single element of the story. So there's so many elements of their stories that they tell where you're like, I don't believe it. But then there's so many things that are absolutely verifiable fact that are stranger than fiction. That being one of them. Um, and then... Oh, gosh, uh, the relationship with Isadora Duncan uh, exposed... Well, first of all, Mary started telling everybody she was Italian royalty, which, considering the fact that... A fabrication. (laughs) Considering the fact that her real name is Mary Dempsey is beyond bizarre. But then they start hanging around in Europe, and Preston's a child, uh, and they're hanging... You know, uh, Mary's hanging out with Monet, Diegolev, Cosima Wagner... I mean, just it's not a portable feast yet because it's the it's the pre-war era. But still, they were just Preston was exposed to all of the art and culture you could possibly imagine. And Mary basically abandons him over yeah. and over again. And he's also shipped off to all these European boarding schools yeah. where he met a, a parade of European wealthy eccentrics. Yeah. And it's a weird thing where when you're watching his movies. It's like, is this guy upper class or is he like secretly want to be like Joe the barber because like he has this weird mix of guys like Bill Demarest who is like the best every man in movie history who just makes you scream with laughter and he's so great at like writing cops and tough guys and like all that kind of stuff but he's also really good at writing like adventuresses like girls who travel around the world and have like nine, nine ex-husbands and 20 million dollars in the bank and it's this weird mix of high and low culture and also his humor sometimes is very crude but other times it's totally sublime like, like a movie like unfaithfully yours so yeah, like really calls into uh, all the, all those contrasts it really like, makes them collide in a really impactful way but apparently he loathed high culture because he was it was forced down his throat as a kid but you see it reasserting itself again and again and again in his movies throughout the early and mid 40s yeah no it's He's such an interesting... Preston Sturgis' movies are interesting because he is so interesting. He is a madcap comedic romantic who made madcap romantic comedies. I mean, just absolutely perfect fit to the stuff that he was going to write about. And yeah, his he, he he's a satirist where you can never really get a grip on what his perspective is because he'll satirize something the entire time and then turn around and say, no, 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 actually it's amazing and way more interesting. Or he'll satirize something the, the whole time in Sullivan's uh, travels. He's talking about how nobody should ever make social realist pictures because, you know, that's just, it's it's totally pretentious. And then the second half of the movie, that completely <laughs> takes over. So, yeah. Yeah, so he's just, he's such a he's such an interesting mix of a person, and that totally comes out. Um, a lot of people think that Shakespeare couldn't possibly have written Shakespeare's works because the guy who wrote Shakespeare looks like he knows everything about medieval science and medieval law and medieval theology. And it couldn't possibly just be some regular person like Shakespeare. It had to be either a bunch of people the or Earl somebody. Earl of Burford or whatever, yeah. Exactly. Same thing with I think Sturgis. That's how you say it. I, I never quite know how the, <laughs> the American pronunciation of that name, but I know that's one of the, um, the, the, one of the conspiracy theories about his true identity. But I went to Shakespeare's birthplace in Stratford von Avon. I choose yeah. to believe that he was, you know, the peasant that the, the history books claim him to be. But Sturgis is the same way. Sturgis is somebody who was a businessman. He was a flyer. He was an inventor. Invented the kiss-proof lipstick. (laughs) 
It's just no, it's no bullshit. That sounds like a joke out of one of his movies, but he invented no. the kiss-proof li- lipstick. Oh, absolutely. He everything about his life is just as interesting and just as bizarre and funny and romantic and tragic as anything that goes into his movies. And it started off really young. The exposure that he had being this American in Europe and then sort of like a European in America, uh, the many different lovers and husbands that her mother had, his mother had exposed him to so many different people. Um, Honestly, the connections that he got. But you don't get a movie like Palm Beach Story unless you come from that world because I don't know if any filmmaker, apart from maybe Whit Stillman, has ever written more convincingly and in a more like lighthearted comedic fashion about the upper crust right. than Preston Sturgis. There are, there are plenty of funny writers out there, but very few get what it's like to hang out with insanely rich people who don't have a care in the world. And you know, there are plenty of people who will write about the rich and like, oh, well, capitalism's bad. Rah, 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 rah. But like Preston Sturgis is like, no, I, I, I want to own my own nightclub and I want to travel the world. And like, uh, he doesn't like to work. I mean, he's he's truly the idle class. And when he would write his scripts, apparently he wasn't that big of a fan of like the craft of writing he'd basically would like he'd like to drink and talk and play host so you get a secretary and he would just kind of like crank out pages at a time just ranting and raving by dictation but it was a very messy oftentimes brilliant way of doing things and it's great as long as the movies are hits but like toward the end of his career the process becomes kind of self-defeating in a lot of ways but apparently he wasn't like one of those guys that like to just sit down and hammer away on a keyboard for 12 hours a day like he'd much rather be smoking and drinking and wooing women and so on and so forth oh yeah no without question without question um and being like abusive to howard hughes and referring to him (laughs) condescendingly as like his little brother and that sort of thing is like that you can tell he's just he's he's not lacking in self-esteem if he's referring condescendingly <laughs> as like to Howard Hughes as somebody who can be kind of like pushed around and joked with and that sort and, of thing. And why should Preston Sturgis lack in self-esteem? I mean, I guess all of the stuff that I said about him or comes up to this is that he and his mother are these genius hustlers. I mean, regardless of where he was born, he very intentionally, and I think his mother is the same way, they intentionally created themselves, created their own mythology. They were they were so brilliant and, and interesting that they would tell people, essentially, I am not the aristocrat I pretend to be. So it wasn't like he was. they were totally keeping it a secret. And yet they could just con people into loving them. And so in his movies, he can talk lovingly about the about the really stinking wealthy, but he also can show that the con artist, con man, con woman are the most interesting and dynamic people in, you know, whatever cruise ship that they're on. So. Or in the case of Bill Demarest in the Miracle Morgan's Creek, that a, a traffic cop can be the most interesting guy in the story. <laughs> like he's 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 very adept at writing blue collar guys without being patronizing or condescending. Because he's the most interesting character in that entire movie. Like he's like, why were you spending so much time with the leads? I'd much rather spend more time with the father, who's making me shit my pants with laughter. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'd say his his flexibility as a writer incredible. But he is also that rare ability that so many writers lack, where he can have twenty five to thirty really interesting roles in a movie, as opposed to one or two. Like most writers are lucky if they can write a few good lines in any script and give it to the lead, and then the actor will read it. Oh, I want to play this part. All the good lines are theirs. But he'll throw away some of the best lines in the movie to a character who that's their one moment this, to speak the entire movie. It's like somebody walking by in the background who will say something. It's like, what the fuck? Like, that's the, where's that guy been the whole movie? He's funny as hell. And, they, and, then, and they're gone. And it's just, he, he shovels thin all those brilliant lines across this giant cast. And like 
John Ford and like Howard Hawks and like a lot of these people, he slowly but surely put together this brilliant stock company that he would use again and again and again. And all of his best movies basically have the exact same actors as like the, the secondary, like third kind of third level players. And yeah, I think his stock company is as good as any other stock company from the era that you can, that you can choose to mention. Absolutely. So I guess we should start with just um, uh, some of the scripts. Yeah. Have you seen any of the movies that he just wrote that he did not know? No. So I have power in the power in the glory coming to my house soon, but um, I haven't seen any of the other films that he wrote. He wrote, I don't know, depending on how you count it, uh, the way that they, the way they attribute uh, attribute um, scripts to writers in the thirties is so bizarre um, due to that like whole piano manufacturing business yeah, yeah, absolutely or you got to have an entire staff of writers and it's like well maybe y'all are just creating fucking chaos but i guess his big problem was that was it mitchell nielsen who was directing his movies in the late 30s and he didn't like how he was rearranging and yeah. kind of rewriting things and so his frustrations because mitchell nielsen had directed a couple of hits from preston surge's screenplays but preston surge's was furious as to i mean like many writers furious as to uh how mitchell nielsen mitchell nielsen interpreted the material yeah, and so obviously he had Preston Sturges was a playwright as well, had a success on Broadway, Strictly Dishonorable, and yep. so he had that experience of being able to basically control the words that come out of his actors' mouths, and now to not have that anymore, uh, he and this is going to be a storyline throughout his career. Money, he was getting paid a ton of money in the early forties. At one point, he was one of the highest paid people in the country. But even as a, just a purely as a screenwriter, he was getting back end when nobody else was getting yeah. back end. And um, just getting paid very, very well. And he kind of didn't care. He loved money. He loved luxury. And he loved prestige. But he didn't, like, make investments and build things. <laughs> he would, like, put his money into restaurants that probably were just hemorrhaging cash. Yeah. But he thought it was, like, I mean, what's what's more fun than being able to go to your own restaurant every night and just get wasted with movie stars? So I, I get yeah. it. But it's only, yeah, if you're only if you're making a couple grand a week in the early 40s, can you afford to live that kind of lifestyle? Control and power was where it was at. And so... He said he wanted to be a prince of the blood as well, which is how he referred to directors. Yeah, it actually reminds me a lot of Visconti when I he'd saw, hearing hearing Sturgis talk about himself and hearing other people talk about Sturgis. It immediately makes me think of Visconti, whereas Visconti was a prince of the blood. <laughs> Sturgis saw, Aspired, yeah. yeah, Sturgis saw directing as a way to have his own little fiefdom, to have his own little you know, to be a warlord uh, in the Hollywood system. And he's an interesting cat because he's an auteur. And he actually thrives in the Hollywood system. He loves it. He loves the machinery. It sounds like he was a wheeler and dealer. And, you know, even though he would eventually butt heads, uh, uh, he, you know, taking people out, bringing them to his restaurant, keeping the restaurant open. He reminds he me of Orson Welles in the sense that he makes a giant splash in Hollywood in the early 40s. Yes. And by the late 40s has alienated huge chunks of the Hollywood community. And while Wells would leave and then come back and leave and come back and that sort of thing, by the time Sturgis wears out his welcome, he leaves for good, never to return. But yeah, so it's it's not completely unique where you have somebody who's so insanely bright and talented, but they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily the best at like following a schedule or keeping to the budget, that sort of thing. But every once in a while, I feel like when you have these crazy people when you combine it with the, I guess, the rigid nature of the Hollywood system, you do get these interesting hybrids where if they, if they have total freedom, sometimes they can be very self-destructive. As they see, when he has the, the freedom with which to hang himself working for Howard Hughes, 
the results are kind of disastrous. So he got uh, he almost kind of needs the discipline of a Hollywood set to contain his his various manias. Yeah, I think the Orson Welles comparison is really apt. I think honestly, uh, I suspect Sturgis would have made a comeback and like a a, a Welly. Uh, a Wellsian comeback if he had lived longer. I think ultimately one of the main secrets to having a wildly successful career, first of all, Sturgis started directing much later, but second of all, the fact that he died at 60 yeah. really hurt his chances to make another five. If you're dead, you can't make a comeback. Yeah. The events leading up to my death was the name of the novel, <laughs> the book he was working on. So it was very appropriately titled. Absolutely. So the I, I had seen... Most of Sturgis's most famous films already previously uh, getting ready for this podcast, I went back and I watched The Great McGinty. And that's the movie where Preston Sturgis actually had the script written and sold it to the studio for, depending on who you ask, $1, $10, whatever, uh, in exchange for him directing it. Yep. And he was making thousands of dollars when he would write a script. And this is one of his one of his really strong scripts. In fact, it won... Won an Oscar. It won yeah. the very first original screenplay Oscar. So, yeah. So I got to see that, and I really enjoyed that. Also, I mean, once again, drawing the comparison to Wells, it's got fucking Akeem Tamirov in it. Like, so if you like Grandy from uh, Touch of Evil, and you I mean, and like if you've seen fragments from Don Quixote, you know Akeem Tamirov is a fucking brilliant actor, but he pops in the Preston Surge's shared universe. And there is a shared universe because Miracle of Morgan's Creek and Great McGinty do have overlap. But so he yeah. is fleshing out this universe. And he, yeah, so the boss and McGinty, they show up again. But yeah, Akeem Tamirov is so goddamn good in this. Yeah, and again, it's one of the it's uh, it touches on one of his themes about the the hustler, uh, the con man, and of course McGinty sort of has a heart of gold, and I love the idea of. But the cool thing about Sturgis is Sturgis doesn't just stick to one story. It isn't just oh you know the the uh, the guy um, the underdog makes good, um, or the powerful how they fall. He goes all over the map in terms of these people's trajectories. And so, and of course, McGinty's story is the one where, you know, the guy becomes powerful and then through corruption and graft and charm and, and thuggery. And then he has this great downfall because he does, tries to do one you know, uh, uh, not corrupt thing. <laughs> and oh, then he's, yeah. <laughs> he's immediately sent to Mexico. Yeah, I haven't seen Great McGinty in a good long while, but they show a couple of clips in the uh, documentary Rise and Fall of an American Dreamer, which you point out to me. It's on the Blu-ray for Sullivan's Travels. I hadn't yep. seen the documentary. Uh, I guess it was like early 2000s. I went to a big Sturgis kick where I was watching everything I get my hands on. But that scene where Kim Tamirov is describing about how once upon a time, he's like, once upon a time, I would have been baron. Now they call me boss. And uh, McGinty's like, yeah, I bet you're scared to death of yourself. And they end up getting in that brawl. And you've got the driver up front telling that story. And she says, you and who else? And I says, oh, yeah? And she says, yeah, is right. So I says, you and me both. She says, that goes double for me. I says, oh, yeah? Then the operator says, deposit another 25 cents for three minutes. So I hang up on her. You let him get an angle on you, you're a goner. You said it. You telling me? It's this great kind of just thug-like banter that's going on back and forth, but it's just a perfect, once again, perfect study in contrast between different levels of society and that sort of thing. And it will make you shit your pants with laughter. Yeah, their relationship is so weird. It's like, 
It's a, it borderlines on homoerotic because every single time when they have, they're clearly close to each other. They're close friends, and yet every single time they talk together, they end up wrestling. It's yeah. so bizarre. I wrestle with all so my friends. <laughs> what, are you, what, are you, what are you trying to say? <laughs> But yeah, no, that movie's great and obviously has one of the greatest dog scenes of all time when the Dachshund Brownie uh, drags his doghouse. Oh, I, I, I don't remember the scene. <laughs> l- l- lay, it, lay it out for me. Oh, no, absolutely. So, And the movie's, the movie's wonderful. Definitely worth checking out. But uh, my girlfriend has a Dachshund Yorkie mix. And so we... Um, I'm a big fan and I sent her pictures of how cute this Dachshund is. And actually... Uh, Preston Sturgis had a dachshund when he was living in Chicago with his father. And um, anyways, the scene is wonderful because you see the dachshund in one room. Uh, 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 McGinty goes and comes into another room and there's an entire story happening. And all of a sudden the dog comes running in and he drags his doghouse that he's been uh, leashed to through the hallway. And it's just... It's just absolute magic. He has another great dog scene, which we'll be discussing soon. Absolutely. Well, what's cool about this is how his career, once he gets permission to become a quote-unquote prince of the blood, before this one even comes out, he's already at work on Christmas in July, cranking that one out. And Christmas in July, I also walked, watched during that same period where I saw McGinty, which um, is a Dick Powell, I guess, who's the star. And yeah. But you got Bill Demers. So you, like, you can already see him forming his stock company in a big way. And that's a, a pretty cool... But I just love how... They were so resistant to the idea of writers gaining power, but once he like kind of got through that door, like, well, fuck it, we'll line up an entire slate of movies for you to direct. And suddenly, between thirty nine and forty four, I think he cranks out what seven movies. Like it's just like boom, 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 and he just cranking them out left and right. Oftentimes, two a year. Yeah, he. I think he directed eight in those three years. Not all of them got released at once because yeah, eventually Paramount had delayed, a yeah. yeah Paramount had a backlog and. Um, uh, Buddy comes in and uh, becomes resentful of Preston's influence. Blah blah blah. But, but between McGinty and Hill, the Conquering Hero, yeah, it's like this like feverish period of just insane yeah. productivity. Yeah, and uh, I mean, part of it's probably just the fact that he says it's because since he didn't do anything for so long, so he didn't do anything for the first thirty years of his life except for travel around and be a bohemian. Baby. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that eventually when he did get his shot, he would just crank them out like, you know, um, Ingmar Bergman during the 1950 summers. Um, and yeah, no, Christmas in July. And then, I mean, it's crazy to think of Lady Eve and Sullivan's Travels coming out in the same year. Yeah, that's I mean, that's mind-blowing. Yeah, that's like Wild Strawberries and Seventh Seal coming out in the same year. Precisely, <laughs> yeah. precisely. Um, Lady Eve, uh, so I like Dick Powell, and Christmas in July is fine, but it's not one of my... And it's got that funny line, like, if you're having trouble sleeping, it's not the coffee, it's the bunk. <laughs> At the very end, Bill Dimmer's like, it's not the coffee, it's the bunk! And like, it just it's a great way to kind of wrap things up. So yeah, Bill Dimmer's for me is he, he he's my favorite part of all these movies yeah and so like i mean i love henry fonda i love barbara stanwick I, lo- I love joel mccray i love all these incredible performers but in pretty much all these bill demarest shows up and just murders just I mean, he is a true comedy killer and i just i fucking love him yeah i mean mugsy in the lady eve is such an interesting character uh the fact that the movie ends with such great comedic lines from Fonda and from Stanwyck, and then they just can't resist. They're like, we have to give yeah. Demers the like, last. Definitely the same Dave or something like that. <laughs> definitely yeah. the same Dave. Definitely the same Dave, yeah. 
I guess that, that might be his biggest part in any of these. In, in, in any of these, but it, once again, he plays like just kind of the roughneck. It's like, I hey, don't accept any wooden money. Like when they're saving, when they're saying goodbye to all the scientists, like on the Amazon or on that island or whatever. But he just he he, he kills left and right. Like, I, I mean, Henry Fonda, one of the all-time greats. Barbara Stanwyck, I'm just in lust with her, obsessed with her. But Dil, Bill Demarest. Either he or Henry Fonda's father kind of steal the show for me uh, anytime they they appear on screen. Yeah, I oh gosh. Um, so the Lady Eve, yeah, Eugene Pallet. Yeah, I mean he just yeah, I mean like when he's singing and banging silverware together and just kind of grunt, growling all of his dialogue. But I mean this is this is one of the true, I guess this is the gold standard of Hollywood comedy at that time. If you are leaning toward like the George Cukor kind of comedy, the Howard Hawks kind of comedy, like there's plenty of other stuff like. I mean, the Marx Brothers are still active at this point, and you've got um, uh, bu- 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 like um, goddamn it, I'm preparing for them right now. Abbott and Costello, <laughs> you, got, you got other shit going on. But if you like movies about the aristocracy, it, you can't find a funnier one than The Lady Eve. Like this is again that Gregory Lacava kind of my man Godfrey tradition. Every Jane in the room is giving him the thermometer, and he feels they're just a waste of time. He's returning to his book. He's deeply immersed in it. He sees no one except... Watch his head turn when that kid goes by. Won't do you any good, dear. He's a bookworm, but swing him anyway. Oh, now how about this one? How would you like that hanging on your Christmas tree? Oh, you wouldn't? Well, what is your weakness, brother? Holy smoke, the drop kerchief. That hasn't been used since Lily Langtree. You'll have to pick it up yourself, madam. It's a shame that he doesn't care for the flesh. He'll never see it. Look at that girl over to his left. Look over to your left bookworm. There's a girl pining for you. A little further. Just a little further. There. Wasn't that worth looking for? See those nice store teeth all beaming at you. Why, she recognizes you. She's up, she's down. She can't make up her mind, she's up again. She recognizes you. She's coming over to speak to you. The suspense is killing me. Why, for heaven's sake, aren't you fuzzy old hammer I went to manual training school with in Louisville? Oh, you're not? Well, you certainly look exactly like him. It's certainly a remarkable resemblance. But if you're not going to ask me to sit down, I suppose you're not going to ask me to sit down. I'm very sorry. I certainly hope I haven't caused you any embarrassment, you so-and-so. I wonder if my tie's on straight. I certainly upset them, don't I? Now, who else is after me? Ah, the lady champion wrestler. Wouldn't she make a houseful? Oh, you don't like her either. Well, what are you going to do about it? Oh, you just can't stand it anymore. You're leaving. These women don't give you a moment's peace, do they? Well, go ahead. Go sulk in your cabin. Go soak your head and see if I care. Very sorry, sir. It's all right. Why don't you look where you're going? Why don't I look? What you did to my shoe, you knocked the heel off. Oh, I did? Well, I'm certainly sorry. You didn't? You can just take me right down to my cabin for another pair of slippers. Oh, well, certainly. I guess it's the least I can do. By the way, my name's Pike. Oh, everybody knows that. Nobody's talking about anything else. This is my father, Colonel Harrington. My name is Gene. It's really Eugenia. Come on. Personally, I think The Lady Eve is not only the best romantic comedy, but I think it's the best American comedy of the talkie era. I absolutely Peter love Bogdanovich this movie. Peter would be inclined to agree with you. I mean, so so many different things to discuss. First of all, major problem with romantic comedies is they're not very romantic. That is not an issue with The Lady Eve. I genuinely witness 
both female desire and I mean, look, who hasn't been in Henry Fonda? What male hasn't been in Henry Fonda's shoes where you're just overwhelmed when you're introduced to, you know, uh, someone that just knocks your socks off? I just, uh, I've, I've seen myself in those situations. When you're dizzy saying, snakes are my life. <laughs> <laughs> Who hasn't been that ophiologist one time or another? Yeah. And so that is, that is, to the movie's credit, is I cannot think of another romantic comedy where I actually feel like, oh, I identify with that type of I guess romance. like Philadelphia Story for me would be in this in the same kind of category in the same league in terms of a movie that just makes me scream with laughter but also the romance yeah. ingredients work really well for me as well well so then in terms of in terms of the comedy I was watching I was watching the train sequence uh, when she's playing uh, the Lady Eve uh, and I'm watching it. I'm just looking at the subtitles and I'm listening to the commentary and I'm still laughing my ass off when she starts going through and she says, Herm, he says, wait, did you say Herman or Hubert? And says, oh yeah, they're both John's twin cousins. And yeah, yeah. I just can't stop laughing at that and scene. And actually, Sturgis has some pretty good visual storytelling. I, I never think of visual storytelling when I think of Breast and Sturgis. I think of great dialogue and great characters. Yep. But you've got the train like racing through these tunnels and like, all these like warnings. I was like, People kind of sleep on him as a visual storyteller, but that sequence, he actually shows that he knows how to tell stories visually. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then there's that, I sent you the text of the sign where it says, uh, watch your head, yeah, <laughs> tunnel <absolutely>. approaching. <laughs> and one, one thing I noticed for the first time this time when I revisited Lady Eve, after she's told her first story about her previous uh, marriage, he's trying to go through this long, drawn-out forgiveness, and the music playing in the background is the same Wagner from the second piece of music in Unfaithfully Yours mm. that I was like, whoa, holy shit. So clearly, <laughs> like, he might say he doesn't like classical music because it was forced on his throat, but Wagner clearly made an impact on him because he's using it here, and then he uses it to great effect yep. later on in Unfaithfully Yours. And so, yeah, there's a lot of uh, recurring stuff, but yeah, that scene, it's funny, like the first couple times I saw this, that scene used to kind of like annoy me, but for whatever reason, this time I found myself giggling uproariously, so... So the comedy is so subjective and sometimes comedy doesn't age that well. But as you get older, you just find different things funny in different ways. Like for me, now I find the Palm Beach story from a personal taste to be his funniest movie. Mm. Whereas once upon a time, I was like, oh, well, that's a, that's a good movie, but it's one of the lesser Sturgis's. And now here I am like 20 years after seeing it for the first time. I'm like, oh, shit, well, the Palm Beach story is like comedy gold. And so, yeah, it's funny how our tastes with comedy change over time. Yeah, the Lady Eve for me is is my favorite Sturgis. I think it's uh, I think it's basically perfect. It's one of the few films where the beginning is really good, <laughs> the middle is better, and the ending is you know is is perfect. And so yeah, like uh, the first forty five minutes, I always forget like half the movie, half the running time is just them on the boat falling yeah. in love, and it's it's a, and you buy it. It's as good as any love story. And Henry Fonda, is, he doesn't even know that he's in a romantic comedy. He's falling in love, and all this great comedy is going all around him. But like, yeah. it's not like he's being like funny and doing pratfalls and that sort of thing. He's just playing the heroic leading man falling in love with this uh, exotic woman. And around him, you've got Charles Coburn and Barbara Stanwyck just like just chewing the scenery with all this great comedy stuff. Oh, absolutely! And uh, William Demarest saying, uh, "Can I ask you a question hypothermically?" Yeah. And the ship captain <laughs> says, uh, "The purser says, I'm going to have to get you a doctor." Then, uh, no, it's look, uh, yeah, it. Absolutely. The when I saw that movie, I would I'd gone a long time with watching films where I thought I can't picture real depictions of desire in Hollywood films. I like I just I can't imagine it. And then seeing Barbara Stanwyck in this movie, she's like instantly. What's that line? She's like like 
ship me just go to bed and like when she said like, they're having this long conversation and he's always like he's like do you think there's any dancing on the boat this hour she's like well should we just go to it's like, what every guy wants to hear but he's like whoa this is hollywood 1941 like i didn't even know you were allowed to say that kind of shit but like Preston serious yeah. when it comes to frank depictions of sexuality somehow managed to get away with murder because he was so sophisticated and charming about it yeah and i think it's also just his power of personality honestly i think he got away with things at the breen office and with the hayes code that nobody else did because he just charmed the pants off of everybody they feel like pre-code <laughs> movies like when you watch like an early ernst lubitsch movie like trouble in paradise like oh yeah. okay this feels like pre-code because it's so frank and so candid about people having affairs and cheating on each other and fucking everybody and it's like wow all right well that's all about to change that like in a year or two but lady eve easily could be a 1932 movie and I also want to say that, so just because it's a wonderful comedy and just because it has all this great romance and Barbara Stanwyck, you know, uh, could melt paint um, by walking into a room, uh, that's all awesome. But also this movie is like, if you want to go pure art house, pure intellectual, I say it's right up there with Vertigo in terms of that idea of depictions of people, voyeurism, everybody's got like two or three different names. Are you names. pitching a triple feature of Lady Eve, Vertigo, and Mulholland Drive? Do they all go together? I mean, gosh, yeah, I guess, yeah. They're although, all thematically linked. Although I wonder... They're all on Criterion, aren't they? Is Vertigo on Criterion or is it not? No, Vertigo is not a Criterion. I, Mulholland Drive is, although I would say Unfaithfully Yours is probably a better Mulholland Drive yeah. uh, matchup. But yeah, no, I think absolutely you should pair this with Vertigo. And while it's comedic and while it has all those other things, you just change a, a one certain, you know, it, a, a, if Jean decided to revenge herself against Charles, against Hopsy, not by telling him the vicious truth, which is hilarious that that's her revenge. But if instead she had just decided to kill him, like that's basically, we basically have made ourselves into Mulholland Drive. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, but there's also one of those movies that actually gives physical comedy. A, I mean, I'm not world's biggest fan of physical comedy in general. Yeah, me However, there's so many great little things like Barbara Stan, when she first sees Henry Fonda getting on the boat and she just grabs an apple and just drops it and it hits him in the head and he like looks up. This whole movie's her just like tripping him and hitting him and just like fucking with him. And yeah. he's always so confused whenever it happens. And it just like, you know, like he falls over that couch and his father's like, that couch has been there 30 years and no one's ever fallen over it before. And it's just... Uh, for whatever reason, even though you think of Preston Sturges as like the master of like the wittiest dialogue of this era, he he handles the physical comedy just fine as well. And the horse hitting the back of his head while he's trying to propose to Lady yep. Eve is just immaculate. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. get better than that. I'm not going to try and quote any dialogue because it's just you basically. I'm just going to insert a bunch of clips because I mean I just can't begin to do justice. But I do like how. This is another example where he's got these tiny little throwaway lines where if you're not really sitting up and paying attention, you'll miss some of the funniest little throwaway bits. Like at one point, they're on the phone. They're trying to negotiate, like basically, like a resolution in this conflict after the lady's taken off. And they're saying that, uh, well, she says she won't have anything to do with lawyers. And this lawyer says, well, that's entirely irregular. And the father just says, well, it's a thought. And it's like, it's so quick. Like, Whoa, that was actually hysterical. But it's like, you've got to sit up and pay attention because they're not going to spell it out for you. It's just these little tiny bits which make it endlessly rewarding upon multiple reviewings. Yeah, uh, screwball comedies are pretty famous for rapid fire dialogue. And this is, Lady Eve is the ultimate. Now, I know some people get a little bit um, specific when they come to like categorization of classic movies that they love. How do you f define a screwball comedy? Because some people use it oh. very broadly and some people use it very specifically. And I've heard some people say like, oh, well, Sturgis doesn't, he doesn't do screwball. He just does, 
his thing. Whereas like when Hawk says 20th century bringing a baby, it absolutely is a screwball comedy. Yep. And it feels like a screwball comedy, like my man Godfrey or you know yeah, yeah. holiday or whatever. But like, do you categorize them all in the same kind of thing? Well, I don't know that I'd say, I mean, uh, clearly I wouldn't say unfaithfully yours is a screwball, I don't think. But uh, I would say Lady Eve is pro- Lady Eve and Palm Beach Story, I think, are the ones that are, uh, you would like most traditionally categorize as screwball. Um, I don't, I'm not a genre freak. Like, oh, no, but for I am me, a, like His Girl Friday is like the ultimate yeah. screwball comedy. So fast overlapping dialogue right. it's like it's like a, like a finely tuned watch in a lot of ways yeah i think the main thing that people say would say about lady eve not being a screwball would be the fact that they weren't married before however i think that because the remarriage comedy a lot of people consider that like a fundamental aspect yeah, of philadelphia the story and so on and so forth but they sort of bring that he, sturgis actually sort of addresses that when he makes uh gene and uh charles talk about how they knew each other before and then lady eve and charles have the same conversation where they talk about how they knew each other when they were children and so that harkens back to it too so i definitely and it's obviously ridiculous and absurd and you know like comedy of errors type stuff so i definitely would put it in the screwball but i think to some extent the idea that it transcends it it's like way bigger and you know, it shouldn't be like captured by every a genre. Every cathedral is a church, but not every church is a cathedral. So it's like, is a ch- is a cathedral a church? Yes. So you could say like, Lady Eve is a cathedral. The church is the screwball comedy genre, but it takes that and it amplifies it, it takes it to, to new heights. Yeah, I'd feel fine with that. I'd feel fine with that. Um, like I don't consider W.C. Fields screwball, and I love W.C. Fields, but Bank Dick is not a screwball comedy. And I don't consider, you know, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein to be a screwball yep. comedy. It's hysterical, but it's not a screwball comedy. So there's like clear delineations between them, but most of the comedies I've watched from this period tend to be the screwball comedies. For whatever reason, those are the ones that have endured and survived. Well, yeah, and so, and he definitely, but he definitely likes to play with genre, and we'll see that obviously in Sullivan's Travels, uh, which again, in this, you know, miraculous year that he had in 1941, releasing that and Lady Eve in the same year. But um, well, as he was making these, he made $200,000 in the year 1940. Like $200,000 in 2020. Isn't bad. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know what that would be adjusted for inflation, but it just blows my mind that as a writer director, as World War II is about to rear its ugly head, $200,000 a year is a fuck ton of money. It's just people know, just like this is not some kind of art house guy gazing at his navel off in the corner somewhere. No. He's making big, giant Hollywood mainstream blockbuster entertainment like Miracle Morgan's Creek when it came out. It was standing room only. It was like, you know, like the biggest hit of his career. He was cranking out blockbusters that just happened to have survived and withstood the test of time. Yeah. And, um, it's not surprising, right? The guy was an entrepreneur. He was running his mom's business when he was like 15 years old. He was definitely somebody who really liked art and like sophistication, but also was, um, you know, it, I think the fact that he, the way that he was raised where he never knew who his, you know, who his next father was going to be. Yeah. Um, uh, and where he was going to be going to school and what country he's going to be living in. That's such he, a sad story though. How he wanted to stay in Chicago with the stepfather and his mother's gone for Europe, and he's like, "Well, I'm not your father." And he's like, "Oh, starts to cry," but he's just—he had a very a kind of a rootless existence there for a while. And I think when you get that rootless existence, uh, and you've already raised in the entrepreneurial uh, uh, background, I think it just was natural for him to marry commerce and art and 
few people have done it as well as him. And like you said, got paid a ton of money and he just absolutely ripped through these first few movies and they were great. Sullivan's Travels is a wonderful one because it addresses that dichotomy. It's about a popular director who's made a, you know, popular hits and has loved at his, uh, his studio and then decides he wants to go make a serious a film. Brother, we're out there. I want to make a brother we're out there. I want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions, stark realism, the problems that confront the average man. But with a little six. A little, but I don't want to stress it. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little six. With a little sex in it. How about a nice musical? How can you talk about musicals at a time like this with the world committing suicide, with corpses piling up in the street, with grim death gargling at you from every corner, with people slaughtered like sheep? Maybe they'd like to forget that. Then why do they hold this one over for a fifth week at the music hall? For the ushers? It died in Pittsburgh. Like a dog. What do they know in Pittsburgh? They know what they like. If they knew what they like, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh. That's no argument. If you panted the public, you'd still be in the horse age. You think we're not? Look at Hopalong Carey. You look at him. We'd still be making keystone chases, bathing beauties, custard pie And a fortune. Fortune. Of course, I'm just a minor employee here, Mr. LeBrand. He's starting that one again. I wanted to make you something outstanding, something you could be proud of, something that would realize the potentialities of film as the sociological and artistic medium that it is, yeah. with a little sex in it. Something like... Something the... like Capra. I know. What's the matter with Capra? Look. You want to make a brother we're out there? Yes. Now, wait a minute. Then go ahead and make it. What you're getting, I can't afford to argue with you. That's a fine way to start a man out on a million-dollar production. You want it, you've got it. I can take it in the chin. I've taken it before. Not from me, you haven't. Not from you, Sully, that's true. Not with pictures like So Long Sarong, Hey, Hey, in the Hayloft, Ants in Your Plants of 1939, but they weren't about traps, and lockouts, sweatshops, people eating garbage in alleys, and living in piano boxes, and ash cans, and Aunt Floyd. They're about nice... Clean young people who fell in love with laughter and music and legs. Now take that scene and hey, hey, in the hell. But you don't realize conditions have changed. There isn't any work. There isn't any food. These are troublous times. What do you know about trouble? What do I know about trouble? Yes, what do you know about trouble? What do you mean, what do I know about trouble? Guess what I'm saying. You want to make a picture about garbage cans. What do you know about garbage cans? When did you eat your last meal out of one? Well, what's that got to do with it? He's asking you. You want to make an epic about misery. You want to show hungry people sleeping in doorways. The newspapers around them. You want to grind 10,000 feet of hard luck. And all I'm asking you is, what do you know about hard yes. luck? Yes. What do you mean, what do I know about hard luck? Don't you think no. I've... What? Yeah, I'm not. I saw the newspapers till I was 20, then I worked in a shoe store and put myself through law school at night. Where were you at 20? Well, I was in college. When I was 13, I supported three sisters and two brothers and a widowed mother. Where were you at 13? I was in boarding school. I'm sorry. Well, you don't have to be ashamed of it, Sully. That's the reason your pictures have been so light, so cheerful, so inspiring. They don't stick with messages. That's why I paid you 500 a week when you were 24. 750 when you were 25. 1,000 when you were 26. When I was 26, I was getting 18. 2,000 when you were 27. I was getting 25 then. I just opened my shooting gun. 3,000 after thanks for yesterday. 4,000 after answering your I plan. suppose you're trying to tell me I don't know what trouble is. Yes. In a nice way, Sully. Well, you're absolutely right. I haven't any idea what it is. People always like what they don't know anything about. Certainly had a lot of nerve wanting to make a picture about human suffering. You're a gentleman to admit it, Sully. But then you are anyway. So, let's dig into the movie that Jerry Seinfeld has said is his favorite movie. He says his movie he likes watching the most is The Graduate, but this is his favorite. I don't really understand the distinction, but maybe it's one of those things like, well, this is the great movie, but this is one that I actually like. But in any event, Jerry Seinfeld likes Sullivan's Travels quite a bit. Obviously, the Coen brothers do as well because they made an entire fucking movie <laughs> about this this kind of hypothetical film that Joel McRae is pitching at the beginning. But I know that with Preston Sturgis, he felt this irresistible urge to make it because apparently he was starting to get a little annoyed by comedies having too many messages and like at one point he said 
he was he basically wrote the film as a reaction to the preaching he found in other comedy films, which he said seemed to have abandoned the fun and favor of the message. But once again, as you pointed out, the irony is that halfway through this movie, it becomes <laughs> the very thing that it's kind of poking fun at, and oftentimes very effectively and in very moving ways. I mean. Yeah. There is humor at play in a lot of Preston Surge's movies that a lot of people in 2020 be like, whoa, that's super racist, that's inappropriate, etc. However, this movie has a scene that's so moving, it prompted, uh, I think, the head of the NAACP to write in and thank them for such a noble portrayal of black culture. So, once again, he's a man of many contrasts, and for every depiction of black people, you're like... That is an age well. That was poor form. Then, but then you have something like Sullivan's Travels, which perhaps redeems him uh, once again. Sullivan's Travels, weird movie because, like, how would you define it? Is, is it a comedy? Is it like a, is it so full of pathos? Is it a drama? Like, what what the hell's going on here? It's interesting. So it has one of his fa- <laughs> that's one of his funniest lines uh, with the. Uh, uh, the pits, the people in Pittsburgh know what they yeah. like. Yeah, if they, if they knew what they like, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh. Yeah, but no, overall, it's it's absolutely one of the most genre bending Hollywood studio productions of the '40s. I mean, it has surrealism, it has film noir, it has uh, uh, social realism and movies slapstick movies. It, slapstick comedy. Yeah, movies yeah. within movies. It opens up with the ending of quite a different movie, which is something he does a lot, like. Like Palm Beach story opens up with this madcap insanity, delightfully from, from a completely different like screwball comedy. Like, whoa, I want to see that movie too, but it doesn't <laughs> exist. But this movie also opens up with the ending of a different film. Yeah, and somebody who wants to make a non-existent film as well. I actually had a friend of mine. Uh, we were talking at the diner, and she said that she was really excited to have seen this movie because now she can tell people she knows where Oh Brother Where Art Thou came from. Um, but yeah, no, Joel McRae plays. Uh, uh, Something of a Preston Sturgis stand-in, uh, but unlike Preston, uh, you know, he gets he gets this idea. What's interesting about Sullivan is that he wants to make this hard-hitting social realism movie, not because he wants to go and win an Oscar. Which, let's be honest, when somebody does that today, you think, oh, well, they they yeah, just yeah. want. <laughs> no, but he wants to make Grapes of Wrath. He but he wants to make like a powerful movie that will, uh, you know, uplift the people and potentially change society and like do all these great things. He's genuine and honest yeah, about it the world's tearing itself apart we're the, on the eve of world war ii and you've got yeah like matt's unemployment it's like the kind of still left, the left remnants of the great depression yep, yep. he wants to make a movie that tackles all the social ills of that time when he's famous for comedies and musicals and yeah making like just harmless fluff ants in the pants of 1930 yeah he's, not, he's, not Ernst he's <laughs> just one of those forgettable directors you're like oh that guy i've seen his name before blah 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 yeah absolutely in fact he is constantly taunted with the names of lubich and Capra throughout yeah, yeah, the movie, yeah. which I'm sure Sturgis actually experienced in his life, and people still do to this day. I often in my head think, oh, well, I prefer, you know, Sturgis over Lubitsch. And then, you know, what is it? Andre Bazin says that uh, Sturgis was the anti Capra. So that part of it, again, continues the very autobiographical element of the movie. I think one of the great things about the movie is the whole idea of the film is Sullivan is going to go and he's going to live as a hobo and he's going to travel as a hobo so he can get the experience because Sullivan has been so privileged throughout yeah. his entire life. Like boarding school and right out of college was already making vast sums of money from a very early age and all the guys he works for 
they kind of bullshit a little bit, exaggerating their own tales of woe that they went yeah. through. Like, oh, when I was raising my, I was raising my sisters, and I was working for like you know a buck twenty five, and like, and when once he leaves, they're like, oh, you were never doing that bullshit, like, <laughs> like which, which, I, which I love. But he's one of those guys who he was under the manor born, but wants to basically. He finally realized I need to actually learn a bit about this topic before I make a movie to the unwashed masses. Yeah, and apparently that's actually based off of William Wyler and John Huston who actually did that. They actually went and went to a flop house and entered a communal shower where like you better get deliced afterwards and, you know, lived in essentially like a halfway house or, you know, um uh, and so the he's he's incorporating that story into the film. But what's great about it is Sullivan is, and so Sullivan's trying to confront this thing of like, how do I make a serious movie that addresses these societal ills while I've been born so privileged? And that's a great question to ask. It's, you know, and genuinely an interesting thing to think about. But when he tries to go and learn something, he can't escape the gravity of Hollywood. He can't escape the gravity yeah. of his own He's privilege. He's hitchhiking, falls asleep, <laughs> and he wakes up like, where are you? Like, we're Hollywood. <laughs> He goes to a diner and like sure enough, like five minutes later he's in his like his Rolls Royce driving back to his mansion and that sort of thing. Yeah. So there's a strong gravitational pull. And of course he meets a girl that he would like to help and he has to kind of first say, Oh well, I have known a few people who and he eventually has to just divulge who he is. But what I like about this is getting at the root of this philosophy where a lot of people who live in their ivory towers, who oftentimes speech speak in a preachy, condescending fashion oftentimes like don't necessarily know what the hell they're talking. it reminds me a bit of like Ricky, Ricky Gervais's Golden Globe speech and he's like it's like most of y'all didn't even finish high school you have no idea what you're talking about it's like just say thank you say thank you to your god and like and fuck off like and, <laughs> and John L Sullivan's character kind of needs to hear that Ricky Gervais speech because he's getting a little bit up on his high horse thinking that well I need to do something of like real social significance yeah, and so, but of course, we, like you are, like we've already talked about, we can't fully hold Sturgis to that perspective because then he goes and has like some of the most gripping and, you know, emotionally engaging. I mean, part of it, it's mostly engaging when you go to that black church and you hear them singing and, you know, the people from the chain gang are being brought in. It's, because, a, it's worthy of John Ford. When they're walking in and the camera's focusing on yeah. the chest down and you're just seeing the ankles and the chains and everybody's singing. It's like something out of like How Green Was My Valley. It's incredibly powerful, powerful stuff. And part of the reason why it's powerful is because our defenses have been so brought down because we've been watching a slapstick comedy. Yeah. We've been watching this guy, you know, in unable to escape his privilege in humorous fashion. And so by the time we get to that point, we're so surprised and we're so like we're so bought into the movie that we're not. We we don't have we're not defensive about being pandered to. Yeah, I hate being pandered more than anybody. I'm you know I'm I wouldn't say I'm like as liberal as they come, but I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty close to it. But if anybody panders to me, like my hackles get immediately up. And Sturgis has such an it's like Inception. It's like he sneaks this idea past all of your defenses by ridiculing the very thing that he's about to do. It's genius. It's yeah. genius. And then proceeds to give us one of the best essays on entertainment and how like the role that entertainment plays and how people think oh well like if you're a part of like the unwashed masses or if you're a prisoner all you're going to want is these movies about like hard-hitting social realism no. and so on and so forth and it's like no they want to watch pluto getting lost inside a cabinet and they just want they want to giggle 
I mean, I, I hate to use the term like elite, like people always talk about the elites and like the elites do this, the elites do that, but this elitist attitude that we must force feed them what's what we think is good for them mm. when really they want to have a laugh and be entertained. And like the movie closes with this great bit. Gentlemen, Sully, I just want to tell you that old brother where art thou is going to be the greatest tragedy ever made. Well, the I... world will weep. Humanity will sob. It'll put Shakespeare back with the shipping nose. Quiet! Your personal courage, your sacrifice, the lengths to which you went to sample the bitter dregs of vicissitude will make old brother Ralph up positively I'm beyond the future. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Yes, and I say it with some embarrassment, but I don't want to make old brother where art thou. You don't want to make old brother where art thou? No, and I say it with some embarrassment. I want to make a comedy. You say it with some embarrassment? He doesn't want to make a brother Roth now. He wants to make a comedy. He don't mean that, boss. He's still a little stir-crazy. Oh, yes, I do. Oh, no, I'm not. You're joking, aren't you, Sully? It's in bad taste, but it's a joke. No. But it's had more publicity than the Johnstown flood. What are we going to do with all that publicity? Oh, brother. Why don't you want to make old brother where art thou, Sully? Well, in the first place, I'm too happy to make old brother where art thou. In the second place, I haven't suffered enough to make old brother where art thou. You haven't suffered enough. He hasn't suffered enough? No. But, Sully... And I'll tell you something else. There's a lot to be said for making people laugh. Did you know that's all some people have? It isn't much, but it's better than nothing in this cockeyed caravan. Yes, thank you. Like, if you're living in a flop house and you're existing day by day, maybe 10 minutes of laughter is the best possible gift you could give to one of these people. Yeah, and I mean, bring it forward to modern day. I, you've, you and I have discussed how much I loathe the business practices of Disney, for instance. But it's like, look, you know, everybody wants to go see an Avengers movie. Everybody wants to go and see a movie where somebody like them has like, you know, superpowers and has like the ability to live, uh, uh you know, yeah, pure escapism. Yeah, like everybody wants that, and so. It's why Peter Parker is so appealing. He was like, "Oh, I've got money problems. I've got girlfriend problems. Right. I've got a sick aunt. Like, it's all these very relatable issues that everybody can." Uh, and then he puts on the mask. He could be anybody, and and then it's, oh, that's why Spider Man's a global hero. So yeah, so Sturgis is definitely because again, the great irony is Sturgis is as elite <laughs> as they as they get, but yet he's, he's making two hundred thousand dollars a year <laughs> <laughs> at, the, like, at the end of the Great Depression. Yeah, he's you know as literary as you can. He's you know basically Clifford Odets. Uh, type literary um, writing in Hollywood and so he's yeah he's an absolute master he can throw you curveballs every which way well Joel McRae said he had so much fun making this that he would have done it for free but what do you make of his chemistry with Veronica Lake because I love Veronica Lake and things like uh, Blue Dahlia she's obviously strikingly beautiful she did this movie she was like seven or eight months pregnant and it was very cleverly disguised my one knock on this movie is I feel like their chemistry is missing when you see Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda, you're like, all right, that is the definition of the golden age of chemistry. That's like Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, like where you just you can't you can't find that kind of chemistry. I feel like Veronica Lake and Joel McRae, there is something missing in between them, and apparently they didn't really get along that well. And I I feel like it kind of shows a bit like when they're by the pool and they're laughing and wrestling and throwing each other in the water, like it's cute, but they never have like the great exchanges that Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda have. Well, so first of all, Veronica Lake, uh, yeah, Barbara Stanwyck and Veronica Lake are two of the best looking women that have ever lived. Um, and just so sexy and just, they're awesome to watch on screen. I'd watch them do anything. Um, and Joel McRae. So Veronica Lake, by the way, six months pregnant during the making of this movie. And she was still trying to hook up with Joel McRae. 
And somehow that resulted in Joel, well, Joel McRae was happily married, but somehow they couldn't bring that chemistry on screen because Joel McRae is like a stiff. Yeah, no, I, I think he's much better in Palm Beach Story, and it is bizarre that he could not get a chemistry going with somebody. Because his character is a stiff in Palm Beach <laughs> yeah, Story. Where yeah. He's got, like, yeah, he's surrounded by all these wild people who have affairs left and right, and everybody's trying to fuck him, et cetera, but he's, like, the, the, he's like kind of the wet blanket in a lot of ways, so it's, it's, it's perfect in Palm Beach Story. I'd, I'm not a huge Joe McRae fan, and we'll be talking about an Eddie Bracken film. I'm not a huge fan of him either. Yeah, Eddie Bracken does very little for me, like... I get that he was popular, and there are parts of his innocent charm and Hail the Conquering Hero that I like, but usually I like what someone like Bill Demarest brings out of him. Like when Bill Demarest in um, Miracle Morgan's Creek is waiting for them when they come home, and he's on the porch cleaning his gun. He's like, hey, come here. <laughs> and you've seen Bracken's like abject terror. Then it can, it's kind of funny because it's in contrast to Bill Demarest being a total psychopath, but Eddie Bracken on his own does almost nothing for me. Yeah, Sullivan's Travels is clearly Sturgis's film rather than Joel McRae's film. Um, and obviously we also have to talk about the great film noir elements when eventually Sullivan... So Sullivan finally realizes, like, look, I'm a Hollywood guy. I'm I'm privileged. This experiment is over. Yeah, uh, back to business. He, yeah, he goes and he tries to give out money to the poor, and that goes horribly wrong. And then it becomes... <laughs> It becomes a noir. It becomes like Kubrick, you know, the end of the killing with uh, uh, first he gets attacked by the homeless man that he's just given money to. And the homeless man gets all the money and gets hit by the train. Yeah. Dollar bills flying everywhere. And of course, he's got the wallet. Everybody thinks that John Sullivan's dead. Yeah. So, so not only is he in jail for getting in a fight with a guy at like the, the rail yard. But no one's going to come looking for him because they just—he's presumed dead at this point. So it's like the ultimate film noir fate sticking his foot out to trip you up. Yeah, in film noir, he has uh, amnesia, distorted vision. You get the wavy lines through the when he's when he's at court, and then he when yeah. he finally gets to prison, it's yeah, it's six um, years. And of course, when he's like, I don't have six years, and like the guy's like trying to be uplifting. Like, oh, well, you, you're gonna have to like learn to like uh, you know kind of just go along with it. And it's like, wow, like you're giving like the worst advice. Just like just accept the fact that you're gonna be, lose six years of your life but i guess it's just, once again that guy comes at it from a very different point of view oh yeah no he's basically in cool hand luke at that point yeah and it's <laughs> he gets blackjack yeah he's being put in the box and so on and so forth oh, yeah like the, the, the sweat box and but i love how like it goes from cool hand luke back to sturgis so quickly and he's like all right well what can i do to get my name in the paper and it's like <laughs> i killed john sullivan i killed john sullivan and like, they're like oh stop 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 and sure enough it makes the front page and then it like it rapidly gets back up to speed again and it's like preston sturgis loves to end his movies very very quickly like lady eve yeah. it gets wrapped up very quickly sullivan's travels it gets wrapped up in a matter of minutes like there's no big extended climax it's like oh once mm. he finds a way to wrap things up it's like boom he puts a bow on it and the movie's over yeah i mean the great mcginty i basically was expecting a second half to the movie <laughs> When it ended, I thought... I can't remember. How, how does Great McGinty end? A great McGinty ends where he is... Him and the boss have escaped. And uh, you, we come back to the present day where uh, McGinty is tending bar in Mexico. And there's another person who he's talking to who has his, his own entirely tragic story. And we never hear anything from the other guy. It all of a sudden you realize that the boss is there with McGinty, and they start wrestling again. Gotcha. That's it. Yeah. They just start doing their homoerotic wrestling thing. Nice, I like it. More, more, more homoerotic wrestling and <laughs> all walks of life. Oh, one last thing. One of the conversations in here, which I thought was 
it, it plays into what we've already mentioned, but when the butler burrows is basically kind of shitting on the idea, this whole concept of dressing up as a hobo and going out to find the real America. And he's kind of like, well, you know what? Like, they might not like it if you're poking your nose into their business. Like, yeah. it's, a, it's kind of an invasion of privacy. And it's like people being poor, it's not like something to like fetishize over. It's like something that's really horrible and awful and self-perpetuating. And people might resent this strange attitude you have, like just like this weird morbid fascination you have. And once again, it plays into that's like this whole thing. Like you live in your ivory tower and you think you're so preoccupied with the ills of the unwashed masses, but you really have no understanding what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. If so, I said Sturgis doesn't really have like a doesn't really have like a, any set philosophy because he goes back and forth on things. I think the one thing that he does have going for him is he recognizes that humans are genuinely complex. They contain multitudes. They and they can hold opposing thoughts at the same time. And fundamentally, what he's saying here is like, look, you know, don't be an idealist. Don't sit there and think that. Uh, money doesn't matter. Don't think that, you know, people aren't living different lives because they are and you're not going to win them over. You're just going to alienate them. Yeah, you're like, going to annoy the shit out of them. Yeah, you're being condescending and yeah. pandering and like, look. Give it's them Avengers Endgame. That's what they want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Capra would basically make it look like uh, the poor people had better lives than the wealthy. And he's saying like, no, like being poor is a scourge. It's awful. Yeah. But also, like, you are not poor. Do not, like, do not go there. That is a bad and idea. Like, and he's like, also, if you go there, you might not come back. <laughs> he talks about some other people who had a similar idea who were never heard from again. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly, exactly. Anyway, so a fascinating movie. I think when it comes to just pure, unbridled joy and glee, I would lean toward the Lady E. But when it comes to a director kind of double fisting and delivering two great movies in a single year. It makes sense that every time that the Criterion Collection rolls out new VHS or new Laserdiscs or new DVDs or new Blu-rays, they always include these two as part mm. of the package. This, this is like, these have been Criterion, like foundational stones going back to the earliest days. It makes total sense. And yeah, I just, I find the personal charm and the sex appeal of Barbara Sandwick to be so sizzling that perhaps I lean towards Lady E. But if someone wants to say, like Seinfeld, that Sullivan's Travels is their favorite, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue too vigorously. Lady Eve is definitely funnier and sexier. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. I'm a sportsman, see? Yeah, me Bill Demarest. I make with the shotgun, see? Bang bang. And what's more, I'm a member of a very exclusive hunting outfit in Preston Sturgis' new movie, The Palm Beach Story. Very exclusive, see? The Ale and Quail Club. Bang, bang! Once a year, we take a private car south for a little sociable shooting. And we never had no trouble till this year when we give a free ride to a dame. A dame by the name of, uh... This is Thomas Jeffers, alias Geraldine. Geraldine! <laughs> this Geraldine, that's Claudette Colbert, is running away from her husband, Joel McCray. Claudette has it in mind to find herself a millionaire on the type of Rudy Valley, who has plenty of the green stuff and don't mind dishing it out. And what's more, has a dizzy sister, Mary Astor, which considers it a pleasure to work on Joel McCray. But like I say, at the time, all I know is Claudette is riding in our car and the Ale and Quail Club is going soft on account of her. Bunch of sissies. Supposed to be a gun club, not a blasted singing society. Towards up a couple of crackers, George. Yes, sir. For 50 bucks. 50 bucks. All right, go ahead. Ready? Hey, oh, come on, oh, 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 o
shooting. Speaking of sex and comedy, let's dig into the Palm Beach story, which, as I already mentioned, I think is, for me, is funny. It's, I, mean, I think all these movies are hysterical, but for whatever reason, Palm Beach story is particularly funny for me because since age nine onward, I've been going to Palm Beach off and on like once or twice a year with my family, and so I, I know a bit of this world. And he, granted, we don't even get to Palm Beach until like an hour into it, so we don't get that much Palm Beach. It's mostly like New York and the train and that sort of thing, but he captures Palm Beach really, really well. These wealthy eccentrics who've got nowhere to be and like oh well we were hoping you would like spend the season with us like only incredibly rich people can say something like oh, we oh were, yeah, yeah we were hoping you would just hang out and get wasted for a couple of months because of course you can just do that when you've got nothing going on it's those little lines that provide insights into how someone like these like the way these characters think the way they operate but claudette colbert this is probably i think it's her best stuff since it happened one night. I mean, it happened one night. Obviously, it's one of the the great Frank Capra movies. But Claudette Colbert's on fire. But it was gonna be a Carol Lombard movie, and she's my favorite female like comedian of this period. She's not a comedian like Mae West, but comedic actress. And I feel like as good as this movie is, perhaps it would have been even stronger if Carol Lombard hadn't unfortunately been killed in a plane crash. Yeah, Colbert's good. Um, I also have the it's the difficulty of I watched this back to back with Lady Eve and I'm so in love with Barbara Stanwyck and I find her so engaging. I don't necessarily think she'd be as good in this. Um, but also, honestly, I think this movie is Rudy Valley's. He's brilliant like he's <laughs> he's so boring like in every other movie that he ever appeared in but in this like so oh my fucking god like rudy valley like hell yeah more rudy valley please it's so weird and that was so this is actually the first sturgis film i saw i saw this right before i saw lady eve i saw this in a movie theater in cambridge massachusetts and the at the beginning i thought the weenie king was pretty funny and i thought i love the weenie sort king. of the talk about the uh, relationship between uh success and sex and sex appeal that Tom and Jerry have I thought that was sophisticated but like I wasn't cracking up laughing I wasn't totally hypnotized by it as soon as I realized that uh, Rudy Valley was playing uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller the third knockoff yeah that's when I realized that this movie was absolutely genius and totally captivated me from there on in I had read I think it was Titan oh is that the um, something George Plumpton book oh no 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 I think it's um, I think it's Ron Chernow Oh, wrote Ron a Turner? book about Rockefeller. Yeah. So anyway, so I read the I read the book about Rockefeller, and so I knew about all of his idiosyncrasies, like the fact that they were the richest people in the world, and they would constantly take notes about all their expenditures. And so when he's doing that, buying the things, yeah, for, but it's not for like his accountant. He's just <laughs> doing it because he's he doing because he's got nothing else to do. It's fun. Yeah. He's obsessive. He yeah, it's fun to take girls shopping. He's like, oh well, we haven't really. He's like, we haven't done anything too extravagant yet. <laughs> just like they're buying gems and dresses and just going completely fucking berserk. So 
So again, McCray clearly uh, uh, playing Tom clearly is a Sturgis stand-in, the inventor. It's like he's basically an unsuccessful Sturgis, yeah. like Sturgis before he eventually yeah. started writing the screenplay. Help, like his exactly. wife has the ability to open doors for him, but because he's very rigid and has this certain idea of, of principles, he won't accept help in any way, shape, or form. He'd rather them get divorced and like die poverty stricken than accept help. And again, uh, and this is this is definitely an attribute of screwball comedies, uh, as well as an attribute of Sturgis's actual life. Uh, the idea of the woman being, you know, the battle of the sexes and the woman like totally outmatching the man. And so clearly we have that here. And uh, Jerry is just so much more clear eyed about the way that the world works. She's practical. Yeah. And so she. And not only she practical, she wants to be fucking rich. Like yeah. she, she doesn't want to live a compromised life. She's tired of str- worrying about when, the, when she'll be able to pay the grocery bill and that sort of thing. And what a great, what, like what a nice thing for to hear in a movie, just somebody saying, yeah, I want to be rich. Yeah. Like, I want to be an adventurous. I'm going to make my decisions based off of that fact. And th- we have that a couple of times now in this movie. Yeah. She's not, don't want to be an adventurer, but an adventurous is someone who like sails around on yachts and has like a staff of 80, like, you know, yeah. obeying their every whim and that sort of thing. And so she gets on the train. She doesn't have enough money to get on the train and uh she is saved by the ale and quail society i think I it ale, is it ale and quail society or ale and quail club oh no it's the ale and quail club sorry yeah, yeah, yeah. it's the ale and quail club and they um i think it's the best performance by the sturgis stock players i do i think it's their it's their great hail mary and it's you know i mean could we have used more demarest some say that it derails the entire movie to the point where it never recovers like it's like this movie within a movie it's like it's so strong and it's so funny and so just deranged and fucked up that Everything that before and after, it feels kind of like an afterthought. I don't agree with that assessment, but I know for some people, they're like, what the fuck is the ale and quail club? And why are we spending so much time with them? But as someone who spent a lot of time hunting quail, I find them delightful because <laughs> they just go on these several day benders and yeah. act like complete utter savages. Oh, absolutely. And also, uh, we're but speaking- enlightened savages, very rich savages. <laughs> And uh, speaking of scenes with dogs in it, uh, I counted nine English Springer Spaniels. Oh, when they're serenading her in bed like that. Oh, my gosh. She, oh. All, all she wants is to go to bed and get some rest. <laughs> and the entire ale and, cl- ale and quail club comes into her bedroom to sing her a song. And, of course, the dogs are... Rawr! They're howling alongside it. It's just the movie threatens to just rip right open. Well, no, it's even better than that. It's Because, yes, there were a few dogs in that scene. But, no, when she eventually escapes... And got uh, a former posse. It's Bill Demarest. He's like, yeah. It's like, we got a former posse. And, like, and, they, and they, they go hunting for her. They, they pick up her scent and go looking for her. Yeah, I counted nine Springer Spaniels, which makes it one of the greatest moments in film history. And yeah, and, and then obviously uh, the fact that John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s, uh, sorry, John D. Rockefeller III's, what's, what's his name? Hackensacker? Hackenloper? Let's let's check. It's I love these names. Well, then the uh, we we will get to more names in a bit because then my favorites in um, uh, Miracle of Morgan's Creek. But hang on a sec. Palm Hackensacker. Beep. Hackensacker. So yeah. So the meet cute with Hackensacker is amazing because here's the rich. You know, if he's not the richest guy in the world, he's in you know the top ten. And he is bottom birthing it, yeah. it, like in the in the uh, business class sleeping cars. Well, he has very specific rules about what's American and what's un-American. So yeah, <laughs> this is something that he finds to be very important. And so he or he could buy the train company. Yeah, <laughs> he could buy the railroad. And in fact, he might even own the railroad. Yeah, and but 
he's got a private yacht waiting for him when he gets there (laughs) but en route he travels like everybody else and so she steps on his face steps on his hand getting above him and he's just he's just so smitten with her he's not even really complaining he's he's very polite and he's like oh just help me get like some of the glass out of like look for any shards and so on and so forth but yeah it's like almost like um it's like the beginning of like a yet another romantic comedy where like two people like meet that way and they end up like falling in love. But of course you get the ale on quail club rapidly <laughs> approaching and they end up just getting left. They end up getting completely like they just take like whatever those things that are to hold the train cars together and they just abandon that train car in the middle of the, middle of the wilderness and start firing shotguns in all direction. And like just watching these drunk idiots firing off shotguns inside of a train car, obviously they're hamming things up a bit. But anytime you involve a lot of booze and guns, <laughs> things, things get weird. And I, I, I've gone hunting with drunk people. And it, once again, you always try to, you know, follow certain safety guidelines. But it's just uh, booze and hunting naturally go together hand in hand. I've never seen a movie capture that side of that culture as well as this movie does. Yeah, no. And it's it's just a treat. And, uh, and as a William Demarest freak, that's his shining moment in this movie. Yeah, when he's saying let's uh, let's shoot the crackers, I could I could shoot that cracker, and they're pretending to shoot it until they eventually yeah, like, decide bang, bang. to up the ante. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's like, a bunch of funny stuff. Like my, I think my favorite funny line in the entire movie is uh, early on when they're talking about age, and the weenie king says, "Cold are the hands of time that creep along relentlessly, destroying slowly but without pity that which yesterday was young. Alone, our memories resist this disintegration and grow more lovely with the passing years." <laughs> That's hard to say with false teeth. That's like, it perfectly captures up Sturgis's humor because you have this very eloquent, poetic, highfalutin dialogue followed by someone who clearly comes from the common people who's like, ah! But it's like, you got the high and the low mixed all in one line of dialogue. Yeah, it is about as, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's an adjective for, what is it, Sturgisian? Yeah, but he definitely, he (laughs) he deserves like a Lynchian, Fellini-esque, like Herzogian, but he definitely deserves a phrase. Problem is, no other filmmaker has ever been able to replicate what he did. Like in that documentary that you helped me hunt down, when Paul Schrader's talking about whenever he hears another filmmaker say, oh, I'm going to make a Preston Sturgis-style comedy, he's like, oh yeah, and you just feel sorry for them. Like there will never be another Preston Sturgis because you very rarely have somebody from that background with the same creative instincts coming together. I mean, he was a force of nature. I mean, that's part of it is how many... I mean, the Coen brothers probably come the closest, but they're two people. (laughs) And also, they don't live that larger-than-life private life. No. Joel and Ethan Coen are just kind of like these nice guys and kind of quiet, humble guys. But you will never read a story in page six of the New York Post about like Ethan Cohen like falling out of a taxi cab with like, you know, like a like a, an entire limo full of hookers or or like his seventh bride for that single evening. Like he doesn't live that larger than life, insane lifestyle that right. like a Preston Sturgis or a John Houston would live. They're just these quiet guys who love they live for the work. Whereas Preston Sturgis was like Ugh, he didn't live for the work. He lived for the socializing that came after. Could you imagine if the Coen brothers, like here in New York City, had a had like a Delmonico's and we could just go down exactly. there, you just go hang, <laughs> hang out, out with, with them? Lee. Yeah, I, the closest I ever came was at the after party for Hateful Eight here in New York. I got to go to the New York premiere, and Ethan Cohen was there. And I remember at one point he was like ten feet away. I was like, 
there's Ethan Cohen. I'm just going to be like a weird stalker and stare at him from a distance, but I'll never say a word to him because I'm too scared. But I just kind of like stared at him like a, like an obsessed fan for a while. And finally, I was like, all right, I'm being weird. I'm going to stare at Zoe Bell. Zoe Bell was also, she was on the dance floor and had like a ring of her admirers around her. And you know, she's a stunt woman and doing all these like crazy kicks and cartwheels and shit. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll stare at Zoe Bell because that's at least more appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. No, this, this movie is very fun. And I love how it begins with an ending. But then the ending of the film is also the beginning to another film that we never get and to see. And it reminds you, because by the time you're five minutes into the movie, you've totally forgotten this strange madcap opening where you see like Claude Cabert like bound and gagged like in a closet, like kicking out and like the maid fainting. You're like, what the fuck is going on? It's just insanity. And then like, oh, well, we haven't told you about like, you know, well, that's how we all met and blah, blah, blah. And so suddenly you, you come full circle to that insanity again. The fact that they're twins, which opens up all these wonderful romantic possibilities because Mary Astor, her character, has fallen in love with Joel McRae and Rudy Valley has fallen in love with Claudette Colbert. But Claudette Colbert and Joel McRae are getting back together. But they just happen. They're, they're two of both of them. So everybody gets happy except for, I guess, Otto, who gets kind of stands, stands <laughs> off to the side. And once again, only when you've been to a bunch of weird European boarding schools can you come up with a character like fucking Otto who speaks in this like fate language with Mary Astor the entire time. She's like, oh, when the day's to come, I'm going to see a lot more of him and much less of you. And, and like, you know, the, the zits and like all these like strange expressions. But apparently Mary Astor wasn't too happy with her performance in this. Apparently she really struggled with the Preston Surge's style and the, the, the society they were depicting. Like she's great in Maltese Falcon. She's great in a lot of things. But apparently she really struggled to get what he was going after with this character who originally in the script had been married eight times, but due to the decency that was being imposed upon them, they had to bring it down to three. <laughs> the Hayes Code. They, yeah. I mean, yeah, he clearly, Sturgis clearly had a way with the Hayes Code where that's the restriction they had to make because, uh, you know, Claudette Colbert's character is basically she's saying like, that she wants to go sleep with a man for money. Yeah, she's like, I'm crazy. I'll marry anyone. She's like, I grow on people like Moss. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I, I really like, uh, what's her name? Maud, uh, Princess Chantamilia. Yeah. Yeah, no, I actually, I, I know what you're referring to. Mary Astor's pretty famous for not enjoying this role, but I thought she was really good in it. I didn't, it, her not liking it didn't distract from if me. If I had never at read all. that comment, never in a million years would I have suspected that anything was awry with the yeah. uh, the collaboration. Precisely, yeah. And I I also enjoy this movie quite a bit, but I think the ending is one of my favorite elements. The fact that we've now launched into because now you know their twins are now marrying um, uh, these two wealthy people, and now we're basically and they're looking kind of funny, uh, like they're not really excited about it. So you realize there's a whole other movie that's getting launched right here. And it's just, it's, you know, Sturgis just being a genius. Yeah. Uh, and apparently this was one of, I mean, obviously one of many movies where he was getting in, I guess he was running up against the edge of what the production code would allow. But the original name of this movie was, is marriage necessary? But that was deemed to contravene the production code because it was a very popular book in the early forties called is sex necessary. Oh, right. Which he also skewers in the lady Eve. <laughs> Our because snakes necessary. Our snakes necessary. So <laughs> this book must've been, I've not read is sex necessary, but it must've been so puritanical and so boring that Sturgis was like, well, yes, the answer is clearly yes. Sex is necessary. So he felt the need to kind of poke and prod and like kind of just ridicule this idea of is sex necessary because as somebody who got married many many times and had many affairs clearly he was not afraid 
of the uh, of the physical act. Yeah, and that this movie comes out of that very experience because he was, I think he had just divorced or he was beginning the divorce proceedings with his first wife and met his second soon-to-be wife, who was very wealthy, uh, on a train. Nice. So, so you know, he's he's absolutely taking everything that, that ever happened to him. Who in the documentary says that Preston Sturgis uh, felt like there are three forms of aristocracy? Like there's the wealth, there's the aristocracy that you're born into, yep. Count a Baron. There is also the aristocracy of great wealth and power. He says, and then there's the aristocracy of great beauty, which obviously is the Hollywood aristocracy. Like you know, Jennifer Lawrence is not an aristocrat, but she's a global mega or. Scarlett Johansson or any of these actors you care to mention, they're not aristocrats, but they might as well be with their public profile, etc. Well, I think that was Sandy that was on the documentary, but so his second wife actually was the daughter of the woman who created Mar-a-Lago. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, C.W. Post, who is the subject of Power and the Glory, um, C.W. Post's daughter created Mar-a-Lago. And C.W. Poe's granddaughter married Preston Sergis. So it's so incestuous, man. Once you get up to that upper level so, so, so of it's money. A, an increasingly small world. <laughs> yeah, speaking of Mar-a-Lago, I mean, Mar-a-Lago, obviously, it's, you know, it's the Donald Trump's uh, country club. I went to one event at Mar-a-Lago years ago where his daughter was hosting a this like Red Cross function for raising money for cancer. And so you would go there, and then there was like a tunnel that led you down to the, a private pool by by the you're at the ocean but then it was like a, a pool by the ocean and it had this like 100 yard long thing of ice with every kind of fish and sushi you've ever seen i was like all right well this is this is these are the upper echelons of wealth but all, to go all you had to spend was 250 bucks for a ticket and put on black tie if you wore black tie and you bought a ticket you could go because they're trying to raise as much money as they could but mar-a-lago over christmas when i was down there there was so much uh, press scrutiny and so much security because Trump was there. They blocked off any and all roads near it. And so in order to get around the island, you'd have to leave the island, go into West Palm, go to where you wanted to go, then come back onto the island because there's like, mm. bridges that connected to West Palm in any event. But the, the chaos around Mar-a-Lago was such that it made it very difficult to, to navigate the island over the holidays. But yeah, so my, like, my little brothers and sister were, like, kept thinking they were going to see the president, but it never happened. Yeah, I think 250 bucks in black tie will get you quite a lot. Yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, the real secret of Palm Beach that no one ever wants to share. It's like, while people think of Palm Beach as being this like closed off elite society, it actually isn't. You can walk into any bar or restaurant on that island and if you're wearing a blue blazer and you know how to like not like <laughs> like vomit all over yourself when you're speaking, they'll just assume that you're one of them. So it's actually yeah. it's a very easy society to infiltrate if you just obey certain codes of conduct and certain dress codes. All that matters on Palm Beach is do you like to drink? And if you like to drink, <laughs> if you like to drink aggressively, then you will find you like I said, you can put on a blue blazer, you will find friends on Palm Beach just fine. Yeah, and I think that's probably what you just described, probably Sturgis could have said exactly the same thing and it sums up about half of what's in his movies that any boob like any any schmuck if they put on the right clothes and they learn the right codes the lady eve fake english accent fake talk like how'd she get here isn't there like there, there are no ships like because it was like, fucking world war ii like oh she came like they have some like other like elaborate excuse. A destroyer yeah she yeah. came on a battleship and then she took the tube oh the, the whole thing is hilarious yeah, the uh i guess the trappings of high society that they're an illusion like any other, and you just yeah. got to know the rituals to follow the codes of conduct. In any event, let's move on to The Miracle of Morgan's Creek from 1943. Massive hit, and a movie that was described by notes. Yeah, James Agee, who wrote a lot of great film criticism at the time. He said, it raped the Hayes office in its sleep. Because this is a movie about a lot of 
hanky-panky and he- heavy petting, etc. and so forth. I don't think this comedy is as strong as Lady Eve or as strong as Palm Beach Story, but if you're a Bill Demarus fan, this is required viewing because he plays the father of Betty Hutton, the female lead, and he just hits one home run after another throughout the entire movie. Yeah, I think this is going to be, you said Lady Eve was his biggest role. Maybe it is in terms of he had a big line in a big movie and has had, you know, had a lot of big lines in that movie. But in terms of screen time, Constable Cock and Locker is... Cock and Locker. People talk about like cock blockers and so on and so forth. But this is a father with two daughters, both of whom are hot, and he's kind of doing the best he can under the circumstances, but the idea of a father named Cockenlocker, of, of course his name's Cockenlocker. What else could his name possibly be? It's so funny. It's so funny. And then, um, yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. I don't necessarily think that this movie, I think, honestly, I think a big part of it is Eddie Bracken just grates me so much that it's hard to it's hard to appreciate this movie as much as I think I should. Um, just the whole nervous stuttering, the spots routine, it's very broad and I think for people for whom it works, smooth sailing, they're just right. fine. But if it, if it all grates on you, well, you're going to have to put up with him quite a lot. And also, <laughs> he and Betty Hutton had a weird thing where they're both kind of competing to be the star of the movie when obviously they're the co-stars, they're the co-leads. But because they're trying to outdo one another, it makes all their interactions feel a little bit over the top. Whereas yeah. when you watch Henry Fonda and Barbara Sandwick, they're working together to tell the same story. Whereas Betty Hutton and Eddie Bracken, it's kind of... I don't know. It's a little shrill at times. Well, Betty Hutton is Trudy Cockenlocker. I thought I actually I enjoyed her performance. Well, she's very cute and she's as wholesome as all and all American as apple pie. But nearly every single one of her scenes, she shares with Eddie Bracken. So yeah, and they have long they have those long takes and and that was part of Sturgis's technique was he didn't want Buddy De Silva and the other people at Paramount to be able to hack up his movie and so he would take these long. Uh, uh, these long shots and make it so that it would be more difficult yeah. for no them coverage. to... Yeah. You either have to include the scene or not. Right, yeah. yeah. You don't give them... I mean, John Ford did the same thing where you would shoot in a way that there's only so many options that they have, so you essentially have Final Cut just by virtue of reducing the options. Precisely. And so, yeah, no, with those un those uninterrupted scenes of the two of them together, it often doesn't gel. But... The movie, one of the things that's interesting about it is, yes, absolutely, the Hayes Code element. Uh, the fact that this woman gets drunk, gets hit over the head. All she wants to do is kiss soldier boys uh, goodnight before they leave. And eventually she accidentally gets married and impregnated. It's um, not at all shocking uh, but for contemporary films. This is the films. era that where husband and wife had to have separate beds. Yeah. Like, like You couldn't imply anything about sex whatsoever. And so somehow they just got away with murder. But also, this is obviously when it comes to human biology. If you get pregnant, you're more than capable of having one, two, three, four, five. I mean, she has six babies. But this, somehow I feel like in this movie, it's almost implied that she was part of this giant orgy and gangbang and had so many sexual partners on that single evening that somehow by virtue of that evening of explosive sexual activity, that's what led to her having this miracle of six babies. Obviously, I know in terms of biological science and human reproduction, that doesn't logically make sense, but I feel like it's almost implied the evening of love was so intense, of course she's going to have six babies. That is the miracle of Morgan's Creek. Well, yeah, and the miracle is also, so we already have the Lady Eve, so we already have biblical references, but here, the Immaculate Conception, there's few things more sacrilegious than pointing out that the Immaculate Conception could could have just been 
uh, you know, a visiting soldier. And that's pretty much what happens here. And it's it's pretty hilarious. But it also, it has this, it, it, because Sturgis is like this. Yes, it is shockingly cynical about the ways of women and the ways of uh, mankind in general uh, in terms of in terms of sex. But it also is really sweet. Like Norval really loves her, and she eventually falls in love with him. And but he's a classic schmuck. I remember I had a similar incident like he has when he goes to this fucking triple feature, and she borrows his car. Oh. And goes off and you know fucks all these soldiers and comes back with his car wreck and she's hammered at 8 a.m. and he's gonna have to take the fall. I remember I had a similar thing like that where I was obsessed with these two girls in college and I was gonna take we were gonna all drive down to some concert somewhere like an hour away and on the day of when I tried to get tickets I couldn't get tickets but they'd already gotten their tickets months in advance and they're like oh well we were kind of depending upon you for a ride like can we take your car and I was like I guess and like later on someone's <laughs> like yeah let's go to McDonald's like well I can't I don't know and they're like, where's your car I was like well and, I had to, and they're like you let just two random girls like take your car to some concert. What do you think is going to happen in that car? I was like, shut up. Like, you know, I, 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 so the, he's not the first guy to be kind of taken advantage of by girls that he has a, a crush on. No, it reminds me. I mean, the story that it reminds me of is Richard Nixon taking, uh, taking his wife on all of her dates. Gotcha. And wow, so, it's a chauffeur. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's it's not it's not the situation you want to be in. And yeah. the, the 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 friend that the girl regards as like as as lovingly as a brother, but yeah. you never but you never get to kiss him, you never get to bone him, like you never get to you never actually get to enjoy the uh, the fruits of your relationship. Oh, there's no question. Norval is Captain Friend Zone here. Yeah, for yeah, sure. absolutely. He he's he's gonna be a virgin until the day he dies. <laughs> I do think, although, so I've just I've just complained up and down about how bad Cock and Locker's performance is, but I do want to say I really enjoy. He has this not Cock and Locker. What's Norval's name in it? Co- oh yeah, sorry. Uh, I actually don't remember Norval's last name, but he has another goofy last name. Yeah, but yeah, no, his performance. Uh, while overall I find it grating, he does have this one great dialogue where he says he describes why he can't be a soldier. So that's that's another part of this. So the movie's uh, filmed during the middle of World War II, and this is one of two movies where Preston Sergis depicts somebody who wants to fight in war but can't. Um, although I guess Hail the Conquering Hero, it's probably a little bit more questionable whether he really wants to or not. But here, Norval clearly like wants to. He's he's romantically engaged with the idea yeah. of going to war. Everybody knows his volunteering. They're all going off, and all the yeah. girls are celebrating. I mean, it's this well, yeah. giant party to say farewell to all the soldiers, so that somebody will say farewell and give him a kiss goodbye. And like they're all dancing, and they're all getting married, and they're all having a fucking blast. And he's basically left out of this entire like main thrust of society. And I just love when he describes the basically he's describing a panic attack every single time he goes and he tries to enlist they start talking to him and he says uh you know i'm perfectly calm i'm cool as ice then i start to figure that maybe they won't take me and some cold sweat runs down the middle of my back and my head begins to buzz and everything in the middle of the room begins to swim and bam i get black spots in the front of my eyes and then i say they say i've got high blood pressure and all the time i'm as cool as ice <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's funny bit. I guess like when it comes to comedy, like my favorite bits are between the father and the younger daughter because the younger daughter, while she's only fourteen, she is wise beyond her years in this, and has a strange relationship with her father when she's like talking about how like. About the like the local boogie woogie joint. He's like, oh, how do you know about that? She's like, well, I heard you were there the other night, and you like cut carved like quite a trench. But she's like very knowing about like what's going on like behind the scenes and yeah. people's like lusty ways. And then she has a strange scene where she wants to sit in her father's lap. She's like, why can't I sit in my father's lap? And she's almost kind of like rubbing her butt. And he can, he's clearly uncomfortable because he's got this. She's not a woman yet, but she's clearly going to be a very pretty woman when she comes into her own. And just watching his 
incredible like sense of embarrassment and shame and awkwardness around her and just like how he's horrified that she even knows what it costs to like to get married like everything about his girls becoming women just fills him with shock and horror and just watching him try to wrestle with that is classic like when his daughter's in her bedroom just like wailing and sobbing together and he's sitting outside the door he's like how about a little quiet in here he's like girls like fooey and kind of puts his hands on his hips and he's always wearing like a woman's apron and yeah, like exactly. doing pratfalls but just watching how clumsily he's raising these girls for me just fills me with glee yeah just another example in Sturgis where it's only one of the two parents are around. Um, clearly, again, going back to Sturgis's upbringing, uh, that's sort of the way that he rolled. But it is definitely funny. The Again, the battle of the sexes. This time, though, instead of it being, you know, a man and a woman romantically involved being the battle, although I guess that happens here as well, uh, the battle between the father and his two daughters. Yeah, he's trying a mind to... like a swamp. And he's like, what? And like, it's, it's, <laughs> he's the ma- His pratfalls are actually amazing. Like, how the fuck... Did you do that without like breaking your hip like ten times over? But he hurls himself bodily into yeah. the air. Like, he's incredibly dexterous with his pratfalls. Yeah, absolutely. Good evening. <laughs> I've come to take Trudy to the movies. <laughs> What's so funny about that? Oh, no, no, nothing. Shall I tell her I'm I'm here or? <laughs> oh, you. What do you want me to do? Fire a salute? <laughs> Very funny. You remember what I told you last night? Yes, sir. Keep thinking about it? Yes, sir. Movie is a very good place. Yes, sir. You can hold hands. Sure. Snuggle up. Fine. You get the idea? Oh, perfect. Perfectly. You want me to come and sit behind you? Oh, no, no, no. Okay, then I guess that's about all. Trudy! They ain't giving away a set of dishes tonight, are they? Now, this movie, apparently, they started shooting it with it only 10% written. And I feel like it shows. Like, it was total chaos, giant battle with Paramount every step of the way. The movie, obviously, All's Well That Ends Well was a giant success. It was a huge hit. But I don't feel like it's nearly as tight as Palm Beach Story, Sullivan's Travels, Lady Eve. It feels like total, complete fucking chaos. And I just feel like there's fewer great lines. And all the stuff with him trying to break out of jail or, or trying to be coaxed into breaking out of jail, all that feels a very clumsy to me. And I think the movie comes back together at the end with like the, the scene with you got one baby being born after another. And they just keep going and getting more, more towels and more supplies. And finally, the girl's like, six all boys. And Demrest just collapses. Like I feel like it... it it ends very, very well, but there's definitely some chunks where I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of there's some there's some dead zones in the movie. Yeah, and it's interesting that it was such a big hit, and it's by the time I think by the time it got released, Preston Starr just already had his walking papers, and so Buddy De Silva he had just butted heads too much with the executives. Really, what it was, I don't even think that it, that it had anything to do with him butting heads. I think he was just too powerful, and they weren't willing to meet his demands. And he was so powerful and he was so confident, he basically thought, I'll go and make movies with Howard Hughes and I'll be an even bigger success when I have complete control. Uh, I'll go from a prince of the blood to a king of the blood. (laughs) Which is, which, uh, so he, so Sturgis and the people around Sturgis really like to blame Buddy De Silva. But here's the thing. Preston Sturgis made an awful decision because it wasn't just that he left Paramount, which probably was a bad decision in and of itself. And he could have stayed. He could have gotten a raise. Yeah. Ernst, he could have... Ernst Lubitsch eventually became head of production there. Like there are plenty of yes. auteurs who had thrived there. Joseph von Sternberg, 
early 30s did very well there, but like Paramount had a lot of eccentric, powerful artists. They were going to give him more money. They were going to give him more influence. They just weren't going to give him everything that he wanted, and he played his cards too hard. And But again, he didn't have to go with Howard Hughes. He could have gone with anybody else. He would have made more money with other people, but he wanted that producer, writer, director credit. Yeah. He wanted his own... His own studio, essentially, with yeah. uh, uh, California Which Pictures. Like Charlie Chaplin had in the 30s. I mean, Charlie Chaplin built his own studio, had complete and total autonomy. He was one, yeah. of, the most, one of the most financially successful filmmakers ever. But I feel like Charlie Chaplin probably had... Um, didn't have a lot of discipline in his private life, <laughs> but he had more discipline as a producer. And it sounds like one thing Preston Sergis really knew how to do well was spend money. And as soon as he didn't have the rigid structure of the studio system under Howard Hughes... He just went fucking bananas and started spending money, uh, just wildly overspending on his movies. And, it's, and no matter how great your movies are, no matter how great they perform, you can't overspend on the initial product. Yeah, there's that. Also, Chaplin was smart enough not to sign up with Howard Hughes. Time Magazine said when like the deal got struck, they said this is not going to work. Like these are two of the most combustible people in Hollywood. This is destined for failure. And destiny uh, certainly played, you know, played out in this. So did, he, did he shoot Great Moment before Miracle Morgan's Creek, and but it got delayed until '44? Yeah. So I thought the Great. I actually don't know exactly the order, but it was in that. It was in that era of '40 to '43, and then yes, uh, both of them got uh, held back. I think, and then so it's interesting. So Preston left. Preston left Paramount, but after they saw how successful Miracle at Morgan's Creek was, they had him come back, do some reshoots, do some edits to yep. make sure that his films. Hail the Conquering Hero got apparently mangled and started testing poorly, mm. so they brought Sirtis back yeah. to do the final edit, to do the fine cut because they realized, oh, like, well, maybe he does know what he's talking about. So he, it, yeah, he, it wasn't like an abrupt departure. Right, but he he definitely clearly wanted more autonomy, more independence, and wanted more time to hang out in the player. Was, was the restaurant called the Players? Or what the was Players, the, yeah. I mean, filmmaking is a very expensive, time-consuming mistress. It's probably a bad idea to have yet another mistress in your life, like running a restaurant. He also was continuing with his inventions, and he had an engineering, a machine shop as well. And both of them lost money. The Players probably lost more money because he was so extravagant with his friends and with the people in Hollywood. But you could see maybe that money was coming back to him, uh, you know, through like. Uh, the connections he was making. I have no evidence on this, but it's something tells me from what we've heard. Like he's the kind of guy who, if Clark Gable comes in with like a table of people, he'd be like, "Oh, all their drinks are on me." Like, oh yeah, uh, all the like champagne on the house. Absolutely. Like someone wanted, wanted to be the big man. Whenever Howard Hughes wanted to come over, he would just keep the restaurant open. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. All night with yeah, with them just hanging out. So. So all this stuff happens, and really, I think you're right. I've never actually seen the sin of Harold Diddlebach. Um, I, I have. And what, what was it like? Well, it's in rough condition now. The, like the vert, the scene you see in the documentary, which is obviously like the most deteriorated, super of all low of them, grade. It, they have not done a. They have not cleaned it up since. It's still the exact same copy or exact same print, and it, it is available online. Harold Lloyd came out of retirement after 15 years. It's got a few funny scenes. And I like the premise. The premise is basically a, a guy who's never had a drink in his life finally gets wasted and <laughs> go, goes on a murderous rampage. And so Harold goes playing that guy. And so it's good. But the best scene of the movie by far is the one you see in the documentary when he's talking about this family of sisters and each one was prettier than the, than the, like, prettier than yeah. the one that came before and how he kept falling in love with them over and over again. So it's basically about him just trying to overcome his inhibitions and become a man and fall in love, etc. 
but obviously Harold Lloyd's great heyday was the, like the early mid twenties. But for Harold Lloyd fans, his movie, the freshman from 1925, like the movie opens with like 10 minutes mm. from the freshman. So you're like, all right, well then you just get this silent movie. Then it segues into the Preston Sturgis movie, but it doesn't have the giant cast of characters with all the great lines. It's got too much physical comedy. It all, it just feels kind of rushed and unfocused, but like could be a result of the fact that it, in 1950, Howard Hughes recut it and re-released it as Mad right. Wednesday. Yeah, through RKO. So, yeah, so what we're seeing is the compromised cut. So who knows what it would have been like if Howard Hughes and Preston Sturgis hadn't had this epic, prodigious falling out at the time. And clear, so that's interesting. I actually, did, because I was planning on watching the movie, I didn't actually read that much about it. But of course, we also know that Sturgis is developing into a bit of a dipsomaniac himself, unfortunately, towards the end of his life. But it's interesting because we still see in Unfaithfully Yours, he's still a master. It, the script it had been percolating for a while, so perhaps you could say, okay, maybe his maybe his, tal- his writing talent uh, was from before, and this was just a carryover. But uh, clearly his directorial talent is still there. I mean, frankly, it seems like Preston Sturges, the alcoholic, is 10 times better the filmmaker than most people sober. So, uh, you know, how much that impacted the sin of Harold Diddlebach, I have no idea. But but, but Hollywood in the 20s, 30s, and 40s has a fine tradition of functional alcoholics. <laughs> there were plenty of... Like, I mean, Humphrey Bogart had many days on the set where he was wasted every single moment that he was on the set. So oh, no had, kidding. Yeah, there's a lot... Well, apparently he and Howard Hawks had a bit of a falling out. The first time they got together and went out to lunch, Bogey ordered like three martinis and he's like, he's like, do you do this every day? Like, this is not going to work. If we're making movies together, you're getting fucking trashed at lunch and then coming back and Bogey was like, Argh. but yeah, but you look at Bogey, the Bogey of like the Casablanca era is Bogey in his early 40s. He doesn't look like a man in his early 40s. He looks like... I guess people just aged differently back then, but yeah. the constant smoking and drinking, they just aged differently. And so, yeah, he does not look, I mean, I'm 43. I feel like Boogie looks like he could be my grandfather <laughs> at the same age. So, um, so at this point, because of the drinking and because of the restaurant and because of the engineering shop and he's falling out with Paramount, his money starts to get tight again. The yeah. dude made so much money, but he loved to spend it, yeah. spend it on his women, spend it on like, uh, his dreams and his goals. And he kind of, for somebody that lived every whim, he was a luxurious guy, but he also didn't care about money. So when you get the combination of those two things together, it, as much money came in, went out the door. It just means you need a great producer. Like Orson Welles had that thing as well, where in the late 30s, early 40s, the money was coming in hand over fist. He had all yeah. these hit radio shows and like like hits on Broadway, making big movies. And he was just, he was floating in money in his early 20s. And then suddenly the money dries up, but he still spends like a crazy person. So like the rest of his life, he was racked with and consumed by debts. Yep. So he'd have to be like paid in cash because he was always dodging the IRS. You're just creating all these problems. But when he had producer John Houseman mining the store, he was able to thrive commercially. But once he and John Houseman went their separate ways, he never reclaimed those commercial heights again. I feel like Preston Sturgis clearly just needed a producer with whom he had a rapport and some trust who could – be a good line producer and just watch the fucking budget for him. And Zanuck, I don't know if uh, uh, Daryl Zanuck at Fox was necessarily that for him, but the good news was people in Hollywood still like Sturgis even as he started to stumble after California Pictures, and uh, Zanuck uh, brought him in. Apparently, 
there was this deal where they used to do things in the studios where your contract players, you would swap them. And so Stanwick... Like, we'll give you this person if you give us that person. Yeah. So when uh, when Fox... It's like trading athletes on like, <laughs> like, like in baseball. In soccer or whatever, yeah. yeah. So when uh, Stanwick uh, was loaned to Paramount, normally it would be an actor for an actor, but instead they said, let's start just do a picture for us. It never lined up while he was at Paramount. So eventually they just brought him over to Fox and they paid him really really well he didn't actually make movies for a while but they were willing to pay him to produce scripts and um so yeah we already talked about the betty grable vehicle but unfaithfully yours i think is the proof that if sturgis had more time he could have continued to make great movies because unfaithfully yours i think is you know one of the top sturgis films it is but sadly it was a flop Huge flop. It's aged incredibly well, and it's definitely as darkest. It's definitely as most vicious. And I laugh uproariously through most of it, but I get why it wasn't a hit. Like, Lady E is like a hot fudge Sunday from start to finish. You're like, fuck more, please. Sorry, if you're hearing some, some like, we're not <laughs> recording in a swamp. My sink is doing something funky, which hasn't done this in like in months, but now it's going completely berserk. So, yeah. In any event, by Lady Eve, that's got hit written all over it. Unfaithfully Yours is about a guy like fantasizing about murder and suicide because <laughs> he thinks, suspects that his wife has been unfaithful. And I love dark comedies, but dark comedies historically don't do well, especially if they have like big, giant budgets. But I just love this premise. You have this world-famous conductor suspects his wife's being unfaithful. And as he's performing with each movement of this performance, he has a different fantasy and in one, he's the murderer, and in another, he's suicidal. And I guess I can't quite remember what it's like his emotions are in the in the third. But Rex Harrison, who I don't ever really think of as being like a particularly funny guy, is like a comedy genius in this. And I just, I, the 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 meaner he gets, the more I laugh. What's the matter with you? You're not laughing quite so hard now. What are you going to do with that? Have you ever heard of Russian roulette? Why certainly? I used to play it all the time with my father. I doubt that you played Russian roulette all the time with your father. Oh, I most certainly did. You play it with two packs of cards. and That is Russian bank. Russian roulette's a very different amusement, which I could only wish your father had played continuously before he had you. Oh, Where Ralph, are the... what is the matter with you? You're acting like a crocodile with a toothache. Where the... Yeah, I mean, this movie is amazing, and so I would not have picked this movie as one of my films that I... You know, we said we'd talk about, like, four or five films. I would not have picked this, and I'm so glad you did, because this was an amazing discovery for me. Oh, you didn't see it until this episode? No, I didn't see oh, it until nice. I Very got cool. ready for this episode. Yeah, but this is yes, part of the... I thought you were one of those Criterion guys where you just watched everything on the Criterion Collection. I mean, I haven't made my way there yet. <laughs> gotcha. well, I feel like it's like Aaron West and Dave Eves, and you're like, I know certain people that are just like, they're Criterion enthusiasts, and so I just yeah. always assume that if, if it's got the Criterion spine, that y'all have seen it. But this is DVD only. Oh, and you. so some of those DVD only is they sort of fall down the list in terms of when you're going to see it. And I love Sturgis, but also this isn't one of the ones that people are like pushing you to watch in terms of Sturgis fandom. But uh, that's crazy because this movie is wonderful. Um, yeah, it goes all over the place in terms of the tone. But I feel like it's one of those movies that you feel like the entire thing is one exorbitant setup for one long punchline. And I feel like it just delivers it so well. I feel like the pratfalls in this, I mean, yes, 
the Alien Quail Club is, I think, the best of his slapstick. I think the second best, though, is the ending of this. Um, I think... Where all of his fantasies and practice just aren't working out. Oh, like, gosh. Where you see him by... You basically see like, the same movie twice, but, like, all these clever machinations and all these, like, these like, kind of, like, witty comebacks and all these moves he's going to make. Like, in practice, they just all fall to pieces. But what's crazy about this is, like, you actually do get to see how knowledgeable he is about classical music. And it's funny how when you see Rex Harrison conducting, as his name is Sir Alfred, I can't remember what his last name is, but the camera's pushing in. You're like, oh my God, this is almost like like a Maxo Fools movie. It's so majestic. It's so powerful. <laughs> but the camera just keeps going closer and closer and closer. And it gets comically close to where it's going up inside his eyes. Like, oh, well now we've gone from Maxo Fools to like to Mel Brooks. Like this is now just completely ridiculous because no, like Alfred Hitchcock, he might zoom in like on a key in like Ingrid Bergman's hand in Notorious, but he's going to stop at a respectable distance. He's not going to go like inside of her palm. But <laughs> <laughs> his shot just goes up inside Rex Harrison's eye. And so it goes from like high art to just making me howl with laughter every time. And you see it three separate times. Right. Well, so you, you call that um, uh, howling with laughter. The first time I saw that very first part, the very first um, uh, prospect piece where he's he's imagining what the you know the music is bringing up the emotions the rage and the jealousy that he has towards his uh, wife who he thinks is unfaithful when he zooms in I did not realize we had zoomed into his head I thought we were just transitioning oh, to the next scene so gotcha. I <laughs> thought that that was the movie I thought I was watching this we amazing noir <laughs> and I was like holy shit. That guy just, he just rose, like, he, it was like Roseman Pike in, in, in uh, uh, Gone, Gone Girl. Girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I'm just like, he just, <laughs> he just took a straight razor to her neck. And he's screaming with laughter. That, oh, he's that's, that's such the evil scene. joy. That's the scene that sent people running from the, the theater. They just, they were not into, like, Linda Darnell is so pretty and so cute and so adorable and so loving in this. And, like, you know, she's like, she's great in my She's majestic. Clementine. She's like a, she's like a princess. Yeah, she's so good in this. And, Pretty funny in her own way as well, but when you see Rex Harrison just laughing maniacally as he's hacking and slashing, it's like, how the fuck did this movie ever even get made? How did it get released? It is yeah. like, you don't see any like contact, but it's almost like psycho territory. It's like, this is so gruesome. And it's what, 1947, 1948? But even, but even psycho doesn't show, like doesn't show the knife that close. Like it just seems so visceral. And on top of that, when I rewatched it, I see Rex Harrison. Uh, like I'm actually thinking about the actors now. I see I see Rex Harrison with that straight edge, and I'm like, oh my gosh, don't get that straight edge so close to her. And that like it actually looks dangerous to me. It totally sold me. And yeah, no, when I realized that it was just in his head, I was like, oh, I got had. Yeah, and then the, the next one though is equally funny, where he's going the completely different route. And he's being noble and self-sacrificing, <laughs> and then he puts the gun to his head, and but somehow. They managed to make blowing your own brains out funny. Go when he shoots himself, you hear him go, <laughs> that that one bit makes me laugh like hell. But nothing makes me laugh harder than toward the end of the movie where he's coming all undone. He's being really disagreeable, and he uh, mentions Russian roulette. She's like, "Oh well, I used to play Russian roulette all, all the time with my father." He's like, "I seriously doubt you played Russian roulette with your father all the time." It's like, but now, but now I wish he'd played it repeatedly prior to having you. But it's it's only the English can be that malicious 
and sophisticated all at once. And his just his use of diction was so clear and so specific. And yeah, it just that that one bit makes me just roll on the floor and convulse every time I hear it. Yeah, his fantasies. So, the, you know, the whole idea here is that here's a guy who is a conductor and he's so used to controlling the 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 musicians in his orchestra. And he's just a magician when it comes to this to uh perfectly orchestrating other people in the realm of music. So while he's performing music, he's having these fantasies about how he's going to interact with his wife, who he believes has been unfaithful to him. And they're all set to the different musical pieces he's doing. So they are perfectly orchestrated. They're perfectly timed. And so the first one, yeah, he sets up this big elaborate setup where he's going to frame, kill his wife and, and frame, frame, yeah, frame the 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 the, the, love, the person he suspects to be her lover, frame him as the killer. Yeah. yeah. So and that's perfectly immaculate, and is the simplicitas machine is brought in, and it's you know it's, everything is set up so perfectly, and he's again he's orchestrating this. Then in the next sequence, he's being maudlin, and he's being bigger than all that, and he's writing her a check. And do you recognize the music from the second one though? It's, yeah, the second one is. Tannhauser, it's Wagner. Yeah, because the way I first heard it was in What's Opera Doc when uh, Bugs Bunny is singing to Elmer Fudd, like, Return my love. Like, they added <laughs> their own words because that, that short, which is maybe the best animated short in animation history, combines a couple of different pieces of classical music. But as soon as he starts conducting and I heard it, I was like, that's Bugs Bunny. That's Return of My Love. And it's not called Return of My Love, but I always call it Return of My Love because that's how Bugs Bunny sings it. But it, just, it made just chills erupt all over my arms as soon as I heard that music. Oh, yeah. No, it's Alfred Newman, um, the conductor for Fox, who a lot of people think is like the most important person in the history of film music, uh, conducted uh, the musicians in this. And Rex Harrison took it so seriously that he actually got lessons from a, a conductor instructor, like a teacher, uh, so that he could look convincing. He, he, in fact, he... I know very little about classical music, but I buy his, oh, yeah. his performance. He, and it's not just because he's British and yeah. tall and good looking and all that, but yeah, no, so so uh, so then he has the second half. And then the third part, yeah, the third part is great where he... The best part of the third part is it's definitely Inception inside Inception because he has the fantasy where he's telling the... Uh, uh, his wife and his wife's suspected lover about his two previous fantasies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fourth wall break within a fourth fourth wall break. And then he do, and then he plays Russian roulette and blows his, you know, puts a puts a hole through his head. So, oh yeah, and obviously the payoff of you know it's like. It's like it's almost it almost makes you think about the guy who sits at home and watches pornography and has all these elaborate fantasies that when actually confronted with a naked woman can't perform. That is actually very common these days, apparently. Like, yeah, people who I mean, I I love porn. I've got no problems with porn whatsoever. But I've listened to the podcast. I'm aware. (laughs) (laughs) But, But people who like but I feel like I straddle the divide where all the porn that I consumed up until like my mid twenties was like Playboy magazine or Perfect Ten or whatever. Right, like it was right. totally vanilla kind of harmless stuff. And it's like, how much fun can you have with a magazine? But it's like if I had from like age eight onward been like watching Pornhub on my phone, well who knows? That might have made me totally impotent. So I kinda I, I kind of like appreciate the fact that I come from the analog era where I wasn't awash in every available fantasy. But I've heard that, you know, you meet 
sex workers or strippers or whatever, they'll tell you that there's plenty of people where they, these, they're, they're functionally impotent in the absence of porn. That's, that's their entire sex life. Well, Sturgis was an older man who had a younger wife, and he was, you know, a romantic, a lover of women his, women his entire life. And then the Rex Harrison character has that sor- sort of uh, march to some... I mean, it's not that serious, but he's playing an older man with a younger woman. So I think there's sort of that undertone of, you know... Yeah, you're always going to fear the young buck who's going to move <laughs> yeah. in and fuck her a little better than you can. And so the idea that he has all these elaborate fantasies about whether he's going to kill her, he's going to kill himself, or he's going to, you know, write her a check, and he can't do anything. He's a total he- drama queen, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but when you see him, like, he's trying to, like, operate the recorder, and it's like, the, the device is so simple, it practically runs itself, and it's just like, he's, he's just, he keeps fumbling, and so on and so forth, but yeah, he's, he's completely inept as a career criminal, as it's, it turns out. It's one of the great, it's one of the great long cons. It's one of the great, uh, you know, long, slow burn buildups to one big punchline in film history. I absolutely, I'm not a huge fan of the fact that Star just loves this sort of, um, you know, grade B or grade C slapstick. Uh, for the most part, I think his slapstick is not great, but I think this is like the just absolute a celebration of what slapstick can be in a movie. The fact that the payoff is this guy, the main thing preventing this guy from being a murderer, a murderer <laughs> suicide <laughs> is the fact that he's just an idiot. Yeah. That he just can't, can't do it. Can't, can't pull it off. He can't control anybody. Yeah. He can't stand on a chair. He can't operate a machine. <laughs> it's just, he's, he can't write with his pen, but probably the most famous scene in this movie though, is the conversation he has with the head of the detective agency. That's been gathered. Yeah. The, the evidence on her because he goes in to raise holy hell because at this point he's completely convinced that his wife is completely innocent and he's outraged he's just completely filled with wrath that anybody would impugn her reputation in any way shape or form and as it turns out this uh he's called a, a foot pad and what, what, what and flat foot yeah, yeah. But it's actually a flat foot this flat foot who ha- speaks with about it like like a third grade education level is a massive classical music buff who's obsessed and knows more about classical music than anybody. He just doesn't express himself all that articulately. And it's just, you see this ultimate clash between high culture and low where he's just like, he's horrified that his biggest fan is not only the guy who's been digging up dirt on his wife, but also a guy who has no education to speak of. And I feel like, you get to the heart of Preston Sturgis yes. in like two or three quick minutes. It tells you everything you need to know about his brand of humor. Yeah, and I I like the fact that he so so the composer has had said before that he basically said the Sturgis line of like I don't believe in high art. Like I want people to listen to classical music with a beer in their hand, and then he actually meets. One like you know, impossibly, he meets somebody who listens to his music with a beer in his yeah. hand, and he's kind of he's kind a of total pretend- dick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's kind of like what the. F-? He's like, ah oh, man, this and isn't as cool as I play, thought it was. I'm not going to play any of the music that you like anymore. <laughs> so please don't tell me any- about anything more you like because you're going to ruin those composers for me as well. Nobody handles handle like you handle handle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but um, it reminds me of um, a buddy of mine from college. We were taking a symphonic masterworks class at UVA, and he wrote a paper called Unraveling Ravel because we were studying. <laughs> Ravel's Bolero and he thought it was very clever for calling his paper Unraveling Ravel I'm sure his professor took out like 15 papers that had that same yeah. title and he's like don't do it well I learned a very important lesson from this guy the way he realized early on that he wasn't necessarily the best writer and he wasn't the most knowledgeable about the topics but he knew how to be kind of entertaining he's like mm. if a professor reads 600 papers and he gets to one that's kind of got like a, a voice and kind of is trying to amuse the reader like I think most kids in high school and college don't actually realize 
I'm not just turning this stuff in. Like somebody's got to read it. Right. And if you could entertain them at all, you'll probably get a good fucking grade. So my friend got excellent grades because he could, he knew how to be mildly amusing with his papers, like unraveling Ravel. And there, I think you have the difference between wrong rail and film, baby film, because you're really entertaining and you take these serious topics and not serious topics, but you take these like big borderline academic topics and make them super interesting. Whereas I, the way that I did it was every single time the professor would mention a reference, I would go take the book out, research it, and then put that reference into my paper. And so that's why when you listen to film, baby film, it's pure academic. Academia, but I think both have their role. Like yeah. pure academia without little drugs and alcohol, maybe is <laughs> a little dry. Which but you it, know, which you know, I'm I'm sober, yeah. so that is exactly what it is. But this pure is drugs and alcohol without any academia, <laughs> where you just become a lush and your brain rots. So I feel like you, I think it's find, finding a balance. You between, gotta have the balance, yeah. yeah. And I mean, just to bring things full circle, like Preston Sturges, in his best work, does find that balance between the most you know, culture t- kind of storytelling imaginable combined with a flair for mainstream everyday entertainment because his movies do not look down upon the audience. Like you don't, you can't have hits when yep. you're frowning upon your audience. If you, and movies in the end, they're a form of entertainment for just everyday people. This is not opera. This is not ballet. This is not Lucino Visconti making Senso. Yep. He's making movies that cops can go see and laugh and have a toast over afterwards. There's so many great takeaways about the world of entertainment from his career. And I feel like it's a, it's a very healthy attitude to have. Don't frown upon your audience. They're buying tickets and they're taking out time from their day to see your shit. Entertain the fucking shit out of him if right. you can. Right. So he died at 60 of a heart attack. He was working on his that biography. younger wife couldn't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> Don't marry a younger woman. They'll, you, they'll bleed you dry. So what do you think would have happened if he had lived another 10 or 20 years? Do you think he would have had, uh, do you think he would have had like a third act in his career? Do you think he had more great movies in him? I don't know how much booze he was drinking, but apparently in the late 40s, he was already a heavy drinker. And after 10 years of additional heavy drinking, I imagine it wouldn't be like a Richard Stanley situation where it's like, oh, well, you're totally ready to step back into that role and have a a second or third act. Like, I feel like Richard Stanley, he's maintained his talents and and abilities. But no matter what your talents and abilities are, if you're drinking all the goddamn time, Mm. tends to rot what gifts you might have. Like even like William Faulkner or Ernest Hemingway, eventually the wheels flew off the cart. You can't drink but so much before you just you get diminishing returns. Yep. I imagine, I mean, I would like to believe he in this. I guess, like, could he have made the pivot to the 60s? His comedy in the 60s was a very different animal. I don't know if he would have been able to reinvent himself. Like, perhaps if he had done, like, a Joseph Losey and just gone to the UK and tried to reinvent himself there, I feel like his brand of humor would have been perfectly at home. Like, if he'd found, if he'd made a couple of movies like Alec Guinness and people like that, like, he probably could have had, like, a second or third act. And they drink a fuckload in England so he probably would have been right at home so the idealist would like me to believe that he could he had a few more masterpieces in him but honestly the the 50s he didn't they, they did not amount too much for him. Yeah, I mean... He's got the one movie, what's a, the, the French, They're a Funny Race. That is like a, an awkward, clumsy title. That wasn't the original title, but that's what it was released as in uh, in the United States. Yeah, and or you one would like to have hoped that perhaps he could have found a second life in his second home, France or, or England or wherever. But I think you're, I think you're right. I think he probably had hit his um, high watermark. But... 
Yeah. What a high water. Like, Le Carnet du Major Thompson in French, but for whatever reason, it was translated as the French Thera Funny Race and for its American release. But it got a very limited release. And I think it did okay in the, for like a couple weeks in France, but it didn't like, it wasn't like being heralded as like some like m- massive comeback by the French. And I feel like if anybody was going to be sympathetic to his comeback, it would be the critics in France who loved Howard Hawks, who loved Alfred Hitchcock, who loved John Ford, who loved all the great Hollywood directors of the 30s and 40s. I mean, he was the American auteur. I mean, he was, you know, in the forties, like he absolutely, when Bazan wrote his book, I'm never going to say his name right, but when he wrote his book, like he pointed to Preston Sturgis as the example. Was and it so Paul you would, Schrader? He said he did for comedy what John Ford did for the Western. I, yes, it was. Yeah. Which I think is very apt. I mean, look, yeah, I, th- I agree with you. I think Sturgis passes high water mark uh, and unfaithfully yours was going to be his last great work. But let's be honest, man, what a high water mark that was. 40 to 43, there are few people that can compete with a three or four year stretch of just, you know, seven out of eight of his movies are were were good to great. And well, what's more impressive to two you? Two in one is year impre- that were it, like Is it more impressive classics? to you when a director has a burst? Or is it more impressive when they have longevity? Because you look at like Buñuel and it's like, oh, he made good movies in the late 20s. He yeah. made really good movies in the late 70s. It's like 50 years of greatness. Or is it cooler when a director just like pulls like a, like a fast bender and just like has this feverish, insane period of insane productivity and then just like just self-destructs? I mean, Fassbender was dead before Preston Starr just directed his first film. Exactly. At the go. same age. I mean, it's- <laughs> He's another person who was not afraid of of a drink of alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, he wasn't. But no, I I think that stretch uh, in from forty to forty three. I mean, it's why we're it's why we're doing this podcast. It's, I mean, Sullivan's Travels and The Lady Eve both are on Sight and Sound two fifty. Both made in the same year. The guy was a genius. Yeah, he he left his mark. I think he's he is he's up there with Billy Wilder. He's up there with John Huston. Billy Wilder obviously had a much longer career. John Huston had an incredibly lengthy career, of like four and a half decades. But Preston Sturgis gets mentioned alongside every other god that's in the Hollywood pantheon from that period. So yeah, I guess it ain't about like how long it takes you to get there or how long you stay there. He got there, and uh, oh so, yeah. yeah, so he's one of these one of, he's one of the one of the all time greats. Well, any final words about his career? Any common final words about any of the movies that we didn't get to? I feel like we pretty much touched upon everything major, but I guess um, my strongest like takeaway would just be for people to go back and check out these movies. I hadn't seen a lot of these movies in a long-ass time, and Lady Eve holds up so well. Like I said, I think uh, Palm Beach Story got even better from the last time that I saw it, and Unfaithfully Yours. I feel like dark comedy always ages better. Like Comedy is a weird thing where... It's just like, even if you watch like one of the greatest stand-up comedians ever, like Lenny Bruce, it's like, ugh, is this even funny? Like, what the fuck? What, what is this? <laughs> and like comedy, it just, it ages like dog shit. It just, it just, it just, it doesn't hold up. But you do have your Chaplins and your Keatons and so on and so forth where the comedy gets better and better and better with age. And Preston right. Sturges is one of those rare exceptions where the comedy stays good, but that's really rare. Like even some of my favorite comedies from that I thought were hysterical as a kid, you watch them now and you're like, Ah, all right. Well, I, I'm glad I had a laugh at it as a kid, but yep. you can't go home again. Yeah, no, part of comedy is surprise. And when you're a great comedian in the 40s 
or you're like a comedic film master in the 40s, people have mined that material so many times that when you go back, you're like, oh, this is... I mean, it's not fair to the movie because it was the originator, yeah. but uh, but no, Sturgis is... What is that word everybody people use now? Evergreen? Like, Sturgis is surprising even when you've already seen the movie. He continues to surprise. Because you can't mine it. Other people can't mine it because they aren't... Only Preston Sturgis can mine that material. But like I said, since then, I think only Whit Stillman has managed to satirize the upper class in a loving fashion. Like, there are plenty of people out there who like, like to make fun of the rich. But very few do so with like a deep understanding who are right. actually part of that culture. Right. But when you watch like Metropolitan or Barcelona or any of those early – or even like um, Dandles in the Stress, the movie he came up with recently, or his uh, Love and Friendship movie he made with Kate Beckinsale, like he gets upper crust society in ways that most filmmakers who have like the kind of perspective of, you know, like someone of like – like a kind of a blue collar perspective, like a working class perspective where they might just have some animosity toward the upper class and they just, they're never going to be able to get in that frame of mind to make a movie like that. Oh yeah. No, I mean, he Sturgis has the benefit of being an insider, but an outsider at the same time. And the fact that he needed to bring all these skills and all these talents to the forefront in order to maintain this weird bohemian aristocratic lifestyle that he was born into uh, it absolutely shows in his films because he's met all these characters. He's had to observe the way that they act um, in order to be successful, you know, connecting in that in that realm. In order to operate within their society. Yeah, absolutely. Basically in order to hustle them, yeah. let's be honest. And then he just brings all of that knowledge and all of that frankness. I mean, Preston Sturgis is very much like um, when Jean, when Barbara Stanwyck is telling Henry Fonda exactly how she's going to seduce him, that is what Preston Sturgis does. He tells you that he's an aristocratic pretender, but he's being so charming doing it while he's making these movies. You, you're completely seduced by him. I would kill to be on the set just one day. He had apparently had this great style directing where. You know, he had a, a certain way about him, and he was very formal. And after our take, he'd say, oh, what did you think? And they, oh, I thought it was pretty good, Mr. Church. He's like, what did you think? Oh, I thought it was pretty good. And he'd ask, he'd ask everybody, and finally, after he'd ask everybody's opinion, they'd all said it was great. He said, we'll do it one more time. <laughs> it's just like, it's it's delightful, but it's also like, it's kind of withering. He's like, oh, like you're, he's basically saying like, like, they're kissing his ass. He knows it. And it's like, what, the only opinion that really matters is his. He was a perfectionist and he would rehearse, 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 rehearse all goddamn day without getting a, a foot of film shot. And then he would crank out a couple pages like in one fell swoop. And yeah, he's definitely, he's from a bygone era, but he's a very special filmmaker. And this is one of those directors where since I started this podcast in the fall of 2014, I've been dying to do a Preston Sturgis podcast. Brought him up a few times to people. And I, Becky, if he doesn't, be like, hey, when are you going to do a Preston Sturgis? Like, I got to find a dance partner who likes Preston Sturgis. And so just by virtue of our little Twitter secret conversation we're going on, you mentioned him. And I was like, oh, it looks like I finally found my Preston Sturgis dance partner. So whether you liked it or not, I kind of grabbed you and, and, <laughs> and, and pulled you in. So I can't thank you enough. Of for course. finally allowing me to make this episode happen, 494 episodes in. Yeah, no, I'd come on, I'd come on wrong reel to discuss anything, but Preston Sturgis uh, uh, has been near and dear to my heart for quite some time, and so the opportunity to really dive deep, both in his filmography, but also reading the books about him and learning more about his life, the guy is just as fascinating in his movies. It's uh, it's a treat. Well, I've got you all buttered up. To what degree? There's another. I've got a, a, a list of directors that I want to get to, and the podcast will not end until I've gotten to all of them. <laughs> But do you have any affection for Maxo Fools? 
So I am totally new to Maxo Fools, and I will tell you, I am not as big of a fan so far. I've gotcha. only seen Fair enough. what is it? The letter to letter from an unknown woman. Letter from an unknown woman, and then the um uh the the earrings of Madame Duh. Ah, gotcha. Well, if those did not convert you, he might not be your guy. It's like, <laughs> I started with Lola Montez, which is like the big sit. Like, I really want to see that. Yeah, yeah. That, which if you if you like widescreen cinematography, it's it's the Citizen Kane of widescreen, and it's color, right? Yeah, it's color. The, I've seen but shots the, of it, and it looks but the gorgeous. Earrings of Madame de, um, a letter from an unknown woman. I really like the earrings of Madame de, but so, but it will, if there's anybody out there who's a Max O'Fools fanatic, once again, you got to be a fanatic. You can't just be like a casual fan. He's one of those directors that I've wanted to get to since the beginning of the podcast, but I haven't had a chance to do so. Yeah, Billy Wilder. Like we've kind of scratched the surface here and there. Like one or one or two of his movies have come up in different episodes, but I've never done a big Billy Wilder. I've never done a big Anthony Mann. Who else? There, I mean, there's a bunch. I've never done a big John Milius. There, there are a bunch of guys on that list, but I've got my list of favorite directors, and I, I will not be satisfied until they all get their due. I spend so much time. You mentioned uh, I'm a Criterion head. And Howard, and Hawks, I, Howard Hawks is on my Mount Rushmore. Yeah. He's come up a little. Like Dave Eves and I talked about Big Sleep and Have and Have Not on our Bogey and Bacall episode, but I haven't done a big Howard Hawks episode ever. And Howard Hawks, he's, for me, he's up there with any, any director you can mention. No, so uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, and mentioning Davies and just being a Criterion head, from that, the directors I've done deep dives on so far have skewed European or foreign. And so, like, the next deep dive I'm going to do is Romare. Gotcha. Uh, I'm doing uh, his first chunk of flicks with Davies in oh, nice. March. Or is it March or April? But I already did his second chunk of movies with uh, Chris Funderburg like early. It was like wrong reel, like one thirty or something like that. So all of his like what, what was his second series of movies? Comedies and Proverbs. I did we did the we did the entire Comedies of Proverbs that I hadn't seen any of and I watched them all for the first time for that episode. And now what's the what's the first chunk called? Moral Tales. We're the doing, one that he I'm wrote. Doing, the I'm book. doing the more I'm doing the moral tales with Davies. Oh that's gonna be really fun. Yeah. yeah. So uh my this is the first I think this is true. I think this is the first deep dive I've done on an American director. But of course, it's Preston Sturge, so like he's a he's an international filmmaker. <laughs> it's yeah. Even really, but yeah, no, he this guy is, um, you know, he's. I don't know if he's on my Mount Rushmore, but he's definitely in my top ten. Lady Eve is. If I were a sight and sound voter, if I ever get to that stage where I get a vote, Lady Eve would absolutely be one of my picks. It's funny, like my Mount Rushmore, none of them are. Comedy. It's one of the things, comedy always gets kind of frowned upon. Like, Mount Rushmore, it's always Wells, it's always Peckinpah, it's always Hawks, and the fourth is always changing. Sometimes it's Houston, sometimes there's Leone, but it's, it's always a. I mean, granted, and like Howard Hawks did a few comedies, and John Houston was comedic at times, but yeah, for whatever reason, comedy very rarely gets like the like it's due and I'm so I'm thrilled that we were able to do like this giant podcast just about a great writer director comedy granted the great moment it's not a comedy but no one has seen that movie so <laughs> <laughs> I saw it on VHS years ago but I, if I'm going to rewatch Preston Surges I'm going to watch the, the, the good ones a serious Joel McRae movie I'm just not I'm just not like super motivated to go see it which isn't fair I'm, I will eventually see it particularly because as I mentioned to you the, he, uh, the guy who invented it anesthesia was a it was a boston guy gotcha. or one of the people that invented anesthesia i think it's one of those so, inventions that's boston a little bit Pride. contentious but yes gotta 
Got to support the Boston. Uh, no, this is this is wonderful. I love Preston Sturgis and you know Wrong Real is uh, my favorite podcast. So, Oorah. yeah. Well, speaking of podcasts, where can people find your podcast and what do you got going on in the world of film, baby film? So yeah, so like I said, film, baby film. We just dropped our top ten episode. We did like it the in snazzy two parts. Socks. I just noticed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Sturgis would approve. Bright green socks. Um, yeah, so we just the film, baby film uh, top ten of 2019 is out, so you can get both those episodes. Um, with 25th frame uh, disintegrated and so I no longer have a website but I still have that you can go to SoundCloud and iTunes and um, Google Play what happened to 25th there. frame oh yeah no we're, we're, we're all wrapped up uh, I think Aaron has moved over to Criterion oh, what are they called Criterion another Criterion group and uh, the rest of the podcast are now on their own Gotcha. So yeah, so I'm now, so but the thing was I shut down my website, so there's no website, so if people want to find me, they actually have to just go and, which is what most people do, they just go and they get their, oh, so the thing, it's like, their podcast You can make a case that you don't even need a site, just be on iTunes and Google Play and right. Stitcher Radio, like all you need is a third party host site that can send your shit, like... Like which is SoundCloud, which I just use the SoundCloud yeah, for. Yeah, so like if you, it's like if you want to be like a, like a, like do video commentary, do you need a website or just... Post it all on fucking YouTube, like, right. like just and so they, these these platforms exist for a reason. So yeah, and so I'm excited because I'm finally going to release. I did this epic persona discussion with a 1960. The guy's 95 years old. Are He's you telling me about this? Yeah, film professor, theologian, no, but you minister. You like the academic stuff, so oh yeah, and he but <laughs> but the, the thing was his life tracked like the history of film in America. He went to World War II, came back totally devastated, and was like, "What am I going to do with my life?" Went into the went into the clergy, became a Methodist minister. And then just realized like Ingmar Bergman films were the thing that really brought him closest to the truth. Did you make him watch? Did you make him watch First Reformed to see if he can oh, watch new movies? Yeah, we talked to him about that actually. So it was also and it was also a psychologist, a psychologist who had had this film professor, and she was so blown away by Ingmar Bergman that she became a psychologist. And so it, it was just it was this really wonderful conversation about like how art house film as ponderous and pretentious as it can be like has really freaking influenced these people's lives and you know they're way smarter than me so it was a it was a cool conversation very cool excellent yeah. well where can people find you on social media and then yeah twitter you can find me at film baby film all one word on twitter letterbox i don't even know what my name is on letterbox but yeah if you find me on twitter that'll be good enough any girls that you're hiding from on letterbox or <laughs> Any weird freaky film chicks? No, my my girlfriend now she barely even likes movies, and so it's an after she goes to sleep thing. And gotcha. she she woke up. Oh my gosh! I watched a Fassbender movie the other night, but where a holy whore? And she walked out, and she was like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> That is the danger of being involved with a cinephile is you walk in at the wrong time, you're going to see some freaky shit. Thank, thanks so much for having me on, James. This is awesome. Yeah, it's been a fun one. Well, we hope you all enjoyed the episode. Definitely leave us a rating review. Check out Film Baby Film. And if you want some more content in the interim, check out my YouTube channel, Geek with James Hancock, which is almost at 20,000 subscribers. So I'm trying to push over that threshold. Coming up, got a bunch. But in the very near future, we've got Abin Costello with Brian Sartre. I'm recording in a couple of days, which should be fun. Co-founder Mikhail Karadimov's coming after us to talk about his Kickstarter campaign for his short film. So fun stuff on the horizon. But can't thank you for listening. Greatly appreciate it. More importantly, as always.
always onwards and upwards. Congratulations to Marcus Penn. Oh, absolutely. Coming nuptials. It's, it's, it's coming nuptials, uh, without a doubt. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.